Let's just get started with it. And James is at the top of the list. Good morning, sir. Morning, Bob. How you doing? Yeah, it's just another nice July morning out there. Boy, you can say that again, man. It's nice. Um, I finally got all my potatoes harvested out of that raised bed. Yes, sir. Those uh, rings that, that I cut for Malcolm, we cut them out of a... Right, uh, right. Big old uh, barrel, in effect. Yeah. Um, I needed to top them up with about six inches of, of mulch. Uh, both both of them were a little low, so uh-huh. I put in about three, three inches of... Uh, not finished compost, and then I seeded it with uh, some of that iron and clay cowpeas, uh, mm-hmm. and then I did the other one the same way with uh, with the Sudan, and covered uh, covered the seed up with about three or four inches of just real rough compost, and watered it, and uh, it took them about three days to come up. You That's you actually really put the you actually get, put uh, the seed three inches deep, and it still made it up that quickly. Yeah, I was wow. Gonna, uh, do it just so I could call you and tell you how how, uh, <laughs> how it works. Yeah, that uh, that cowpea, iron and clay, and I'm sure that the stuff you buy at HEB will probably do the same thing. Uh, it wants to grow, especially when it gets warm like this. Mm-hmm. So I buried them pretty deep so I could uh, so I could call you and tell you about it. But if you can't plant cover crops this time of the year with that way. That's, uh, you know, a third grader could do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll be interested in, you know, hearing um, your your, uh, results on them when we get toward the end of the summer. There's so many different possibilities, and, you know, all the different ones have different potential benefits. Your cowpeas are legumes, so they're going to put a little bit of nitrogen back in the soil. Your Sudan makes an incredibly bushy root mass so you're going to be putting a lot of raw organic material back into the soil uh the folks up at rodale are actually using hemp as a cover crop and calling it something of a smother crop because they say it's getting so thick it's eliminating most of the weeds and um it'll just be interesting to see what you feel works best i have an idea that we're probably all going to Everybody who's doing it right is going to get in a cycle of rotating cover crops. And if you use Sudan one year, maybe you're going to use, uh, you know, peas the next year. Maybe you're going to use something different the following year. Since each one of them brings its own menu, so to speak, of good things to the soil. So uh, I'm, I'll be real interested to watch and see how both of the these things do as far as smothering weeds and uh, improving and softening the soil. I think it'll be very interesting. Every three years, it's a Sudan because it works really well. The big boys are using it uh, on the big potato fields. Uh-huh. The nematodes down. Um, <clears throat> it's really good at trapping and nematodes, and uh, it's got a lot going for it. So it uh, works It works like the Elbon rye is a trap crop. The nematodes, the root-knot nematodes, get into the roots and then can't develop or can't get back out? That's... That's one of the ways it works. Uh, when it uh, when it decomposes, it produces a, a, a nematidal uh, chemical uh-huh. that uh, they don't really like a lot. And but of course, thought, there's there's also would... a fungus that grows in the mulches that actually catches. Uh, I've seen the electron micrographs. It actually makes little loops in its mycelium in its body, so to speak, 
that actually grab these root-feeding nematodes as they go through and uh, hold them and digest them. There's just a lot of different ways that these things work. And I'm sorry for interrupting. Where were you going next? Well, um, when it comes to covering the seed up with mulch, all you got to do is just pull the pull the big weeds out of the bed, mm-hmm. scatter your seed, and just just shovel some uh, some unfinished compost on there and drag the water hose over. <laughs> it's real easy to get started. Uh, yeah. If you want to cover crop during the heat of the summer. Yeah, and they're inexpensive, too. That seed is, you know, it's not like buying this hybrid seed. It's, uh, uh, you can buy it by the pound and not spend a lot of money. I haven't tried the seed from HEB, but uh, I'm sure it would do just as well. Well, if you're doing any volume of it, you can always go to Douglas King or somewhere like that that has, you know, bulk seed. And I imagine old Dean would, you know, sack up a pound of, uh, you know, just about anything you wanted over there for that kind of purpose. So, uh, well, yeah. when, it, when it comes to buying from those guys, it's got to be five pound minimum. Hey, always ask. <laughs> you know, their their posted minimums aren't always uh, aren't aren't always enforced, shall we say? And sometimes, if you're a good customer and a good friend, uh, they they somehow manage to. And even if they charge you an extra dollar for the bag or something. Uh, um, I find that they're pretty flexible if they're not real busy, but, uh, it's, you know, even so, uh, that seed keeps. So if you bought five pounds of it and used half of it this year and half of it next year, you wouldn't be that bad off. Yeah. I get the, the batch out there. It's, yeah, uh, it's a lot of fun. Okay. Well, that's all I got for you on cover crops. Here. How is, how's everything else in the garden growing? You said you're pretty much through with spring tomatoes. Uh, when are those fall tomatoes going to go out of the root makers and into the, uh, into the hoop houses? Well, I started them, uh, in May, which might've been a little early. They're already uh, two and a half, three foot tall. So yeah, I think yeah. I got, I got too, a little too early of a start on them. Well, this has been an unusual year. I'll be interested to see what your take is as we get, uh, you know, as we get later into the summer, because uh, um, I I'm still, and you know, I'm I'm guilty of having been a, had a real busy spring and not getting as much seed as started as I wanted to, but I still feel like we're going to do better long term getting those fall tomatoes uh, into the ground in June or so rather than waiting for the middle of July like the Extension Service is pushing us to do. Because every time I've done that, I've had better tomatoes and a far bigger crop because it just, I don't know, I think it's just a little easier for them to get established before that late July heat, July and August heat sets in. And uh, anyway, I'll I'll be interested to hear how yours have done because you certainly do it on a bigger scale than most of us, and uh, that's worth a lot knowing about. Well, they're enjoying that 30% shade, that's, uh, <laughs> I can tell you that. And they're enjoying 92 degrees for a high on the 5th of July or 6th of July, whatever it's been the past couple of days, when oh, you and I both remember plenty of 100-plus degree days this time of year. So it's been an unusual year. I hope it keeps up. Well, thanks for taking my call, Bob. Always a pleasure. You have a good Sunday, James. We'll talk again. Thank you. Bye. All right, Karen's up next, and it'll be Doug and Glenn. Good morning, Karen. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, I have a question. I have a bush. um, Don't exactly know the name of it. It has in the fall. It'll get those red berries on it. Okay. It is uh, got. It looks like snow on the bottom of the the limbs and everything i have sprayed it with neem oil 
and I'm not sure if I need to continue to do that or am I using the wrong thing on it? And You're probably using the right thing. Uh, what I would do is take your fingers and just, you know, slide along where you see that cottony residue. If your fingers mm-hmm. come away moist, yeah, you probably need to spray again. And be sure your neem is fresh. Neem has a relatively short life. Once you've opened it, it's only good for about six months. So for most of us, that means getting a new bottle of it every year if we if we open it and use it. But uh, if it just kind of flakes off, if it's just, uh, you know, dry, that's the indication that you've gotten it under control because uh, uh, whether it's uh, scale, whether it's one of the mealy bugs, it looks pretty much the same whether it's dead or alive. There is one other little interesting creature that is called a leaf hopper. Does minimal damage, even though it can spread some disease, but uh, it makes a little cottony web that just goes all up and down the stem. But uh, um, those are the three principal things. But if your if your finger comes away dry, you've taken care of it. Uh, if you get some moisture, you've still got some livus in there and need to spray again. And how often should I do that? Once a week? Once every other day? Or I, you know, I would check it with some regularity, but I can't imagine needing to spray more than once every four to six weeks. If you're spraying thoroughly and if your neem is fresh, that stuff just... It's very effective, and of course, uh, because it is an oil, um, you always want to spray either early in the day or late in the day because all the oils can be what we call phytotoxic. They act like a little magnifying glass and burn the cells underneath them, so be sure to spray early or late. But generally speaking, one good application is enough, and usually two, if you have to make a second application, that's the last time you'll have to do it. All righty. Um, my husband has tomatoes, and the the leaves are yellow. They turn yellow from the bottom up. That is a disease called early blight, which is a fungus disease. It uh, is worse on some varieties than others. It gets started uh, when either through watering or rain, it splashes the fungus spores out of the soil and up onto the lower leaves of the tomatoes. I generally, when I put my tomatoes out, I find sprinkling a handful of whole ground cornmeal around the base will stop a lot of it. Once it gets started on a plant, you might as well pinch off most of the leaves that are yellowed and spray. This you can and you could use neem. You could use uh, just about any good safe fungicide. What I usually do is just whole ground cornmeal soaked in water, make kind of like a corn water tea. Spray the leaves with that. There you want to make two or three sprayings over the period of two weeks, and that most varieties, that will get it under control. Now, some varieties are just super susceptible, like uh, oh, the Roma tomatoes, some of those. It's just real hard to control. But most of your tomato varieties, you can get it under control. Although when you or he plant the fall tomatoes, be sure and put that handful of uh, whole ground cornmeal just sprinkled on the ground around the base of the plant because it's always easier to prevent than it is to control. All righty. Um, we have little tiny frogs. Uh-huh. Yeah. It just seems like, well, the, is there something we can put in the yard to control them or? Why would you want to control them? They're, I don't know. <laughs> they're they're bug eaters. Uh, they eat mosquitoes. <laughs> that should oh, be that that should be a good reason to cherish every frog you've got out there. But no, they they eat the June bugs that lay the eggs for grub worms. They eat mosquitoes. They eat a lot of things that we try real hard to get rid of. And aside from the fact that. Uh, 
<laughs> they may scare you half to death when uh, when one jumps that you didn't know was there. And if you have a dog, you know, the dogs will get out and sometimes they will grab them, which they only do once. Uh, it, it's not dangerous, but frogs and toads have uh, special glands in their skin that are called poison glands. Now, there's some Central American frogs that uh, are very, very highly toxic, but uh, <laughs> the ones we have around here, that dog grabs one in his mouth one time, and it'll sit there and foam like in nobody's business for a few minutes, and uh, it's usually they only grab them one time because apparently it's not a real a real good experience for them, but they are, you know, they're totally harmless to people and pets. And they, like I say, they, among, among other things they eat that we're glad to be rid of are the mosquitoes. Awesome. I just want to tell you, I, I got in a push pull hole uh-huh. um, about three or four years ago. Absolutely love it. Good. Do they make one that when I'm down on my knees underneath the plant pulling stuff, that is a smaller handle? They don't, but every now and then I break the handle on a push-pull hoe, and sometimes rather than replace the handle, I've got one that's nothing but the little metal part. So I haven't found anybody that will make one, and I'm trying, or we are trying to get a couple of the manufacturers. Uh, My uh, business partner was an antique store one time, and she found a little, it's almost like a scythe. It has uh, a handle and then sort of uh, perpendicular to it, it it curves around and has a very sharp blade that you can reach in and use that as a weeder. And we're trying to get, you know, we've tried a couple of different big companies, and so far we haven't gotten a commitment from anyone to manufacture these. But I'm hopeful that that will come along at some point. But in the meantime... Um, you know, find somebody or find find a push-pull hole with a broken handle and just make your own uh, short-stem version. Okay, very good. But I do love it. That's the, oh, it's awesome. I'm it. glad you yeah. like them as much as I do. Yeah. Okay, well, that's all my questions, and I appreciate it. Thank well, you, good questions they are. appreciate the call, Karen. We'll talk again. I need to do a quick break, and then it will be Doug and Glenn and Ron, and then whoever grabs that open line. It's just, they never stay open for very long. Ah, Kareem was just telling me it's going to be a light commercial load, which I love because it gives us more time to talk to you. Doug's up next. Good morning, Doug. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good. How are you today? Oh, wonderful. Thanks. Um, I've been following your uh, cornmeal organic compost to fight the uh, oak wilt, oak decline that we have. It's it's oak oak wilt is the correct term. Yeah. Okay, okay. I live up between Harper, Kerrville, Fredericksburg, and it's like ground zero up here. Yes, sir. It's really bad. Um, but I caught the end of you telling somebody about just making this little tea, and I'd like you to tell me in depth how to do that so that I can fight them that way. It, uh, it's it's easy, that easier and, and uses less cornmeal. This comes from a friend of mine who's a certified arborist. In fact, this guy actually teaches the courses that other arborists have to take if they want to become certified. And through a great deal of experimentation, um, they find that you can get the same good results by making a tea simply by, let's say you want to use five-gallon buckets, put maybe a cup of cornmeal to the five-gallon bucket, uh, soak it overnight, 
and then simply pour that water, no straining, no anything necessary, around the base of the tree. And the other thing David was telling us is that they are finding that you don't really need to go out to the root zone because where the fungus attacks and does most of the damage is actually in the trunk of the tree. Uh, the most important place to apply this liquid is from the trunk out maybe 10 or 12 feet and small tree, let's say up to six inches, five, six inches in diameter, one five gallon bucket may be enough, you know, bigger tree, just proportionately two or three buckets full. And as a preventive, they're doing it about every six months as a curative, they're doing it maybe every three months. And if the tree is not too far gone already, they're seeing better results with this than they've seen with those $500 tree Alamo injections. So uh, uh, seems to be working extremely well, takes less cornmeal, less problems with the deer and raccoons trying to go out and lick up the cornmeal off the ground, and certainly a lot less work uh, to do. So um, so far, so far, it looks very promising. There was actually a paper on this presented recently at, a, at the Proceedings of the International Society of Arboriculture. So it's becoming more mainstream. I know the people that, you know, make the chemicals and things are fighting real hard to kind of suppress that information. But uh, um, it is working pretty well over a wide area. What kind of results have you had with the compost in the cornmeal? Well, um, I still have my trees. Um, I have them around a lot of them that I had trimmed prior to listening to you and starting that. Uh-huh. But on on the ones that are healthy, and I'm putting it around all the other oaks, too, because I don't want them to just, you know, those are, I guess they die in a day or two, you know. Or, well, red oaks die very, very quickly. Live oaks, it usually takes a longer period of time, but um, it does... Uh, it does spread through the roots, and it that, that's the other thing about the injection stuff with the Alamo. It may suppress symptoms for a while, but it does nothing to stop it from spreading to tree to tree. Uh, the cornmeal seems to actually control it so it stops spreading to other trees. Well, I have already bought five bags of cornmeal and 20 Home Depot buckets <laughs> just <laughs> off the end of your comment well, the other day, uh, so I'm ready to go. Very good. If you know anyone that has a bakery or anything like that, those folks get a lot of different product in those five-gallon buckets. And I know one of our bakeries up in Bernie, you know, gives those buckets away. So Homer's bucket's not terribly expensive and it's probably a little bit more substantial. But if you uh, have any uh, good bakeries, and I'm sure you do have a few up in the Harper area, you might drop by and say, hey, have you got any of those big old plastic buckets you'd like to get rid of? And you may increase your supply at uh, no additional charge other than maybe buying a good pastry or two from them. Yes, well, I'll leave that for the next guy because I have my supply. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, I hope you'll keep I me posted on how. To to work on. Well, keep me posted on how it does for you, Doug. I look forward to it. I, I sure will, Bob. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Glenn's next. Good morning, Glenn. Bob. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Got a got a question. I've got a pepper problem. I've got. I don't know, five or six different varieties of, of peppers out in my garden. It looks like just about all of them have uh, contracted bacterial leaf spot, and that's from looking at pictures on the Internet. So I certainly wanted to wanted to call you. But is there is there anything I can do about that, or should I just 
possibly try to start some more peppers? Well, um, that would be unusual. We see very few bacterial problems, and uh, we see only a few fungal problems, and it is almost always... When it hits a pepper plant, it's a pepper that's under stress for one reason or another. Um, are these good hot weather peppers? You know, a lot of things like the, you know, those hatch chilies and the uh, poblanos. And there are a number of chilies that are higher altitude chilies that are just more susceptible to problems. So uh, are you seeing this on the old serranos and jalapenos and bells or is it uh, just pretty much across the whole garden? I am I am seeing it uh, on my bell peppers. My jalapeno I planted away from my sweet peppers, so uh-huh. I don't get any, any surprises from it. Well, but, yeah, you're not going to get any surprises anyway, unless you're unless you're saving your own seed. Tell me this: How often do you water those peppers? I had been watering them really, really good, uh, pretty much once a week. And I'm thinking about, not thinking about, I'm probably going to go now that it's getting hotter to twice a week. Oh, I would go at least twice a week. I think you're, I think you're keeping them a little on the dry side. Mine probably get it three times a week and I have not a bad leaf on them and, uh, and just abundant pepper, uh, pepper production I say that 10 times in a hurry. But, uh, you know, with bacteria, it, it doesn't do any good to spray with a fungicide. Um, one thing that you can use on them is uh, diluted hydrogen peroxide. Do it morning or evening. Uh, get your old, just cheap old grocery store hydrogen peroxide. Dilute it two to one with water and spray that. And I think you're going to find that that will control the problem if you want to plant some more plants uh, by all means do that but i i have yet to see there the couple of root diseases can actually kill peppers but foliage diseases it's rare that you can't get a plant to come right out of it i'd be fertilizing regularly with a good liquid fertilizer i'd spray a couple of times with the hydrogen peroxide if you want to make up some garret juice and use that as a foliar spray um i think this is a stress indicator more than anything else and uh i i think your plants are 100 percent recoverable okay well i certainly hope you're right i've done i've done all of that except for the hydrogen peroxide yeah i wasn't wasn't sure about that but i'll I've uh, I've got some. How how does the new growth look on the plants? They're they're really not putting. Let me, let me walk over here. I'm out in the garden right now. <laughs> I had to put, put down my hose to run. run grab. <laughs> Man after my own heart. That's the way to do it. Anyway, uh, you know, even up toward the top, I see some buds where they're going to bloom. But even on the leaves up toward the top i see some indication of the little brown spot coming on well Uh, get after it with your hydrogen peroxide are you fertilizing regularly with uh has to grow or a spomer or one of the good liquid fertilizers pretty much every other week with the has to grow that's sure what i'd be doing um try the peroxide call me in a couple of weeks and uh let's see how they're doing but um, I, you know, I think it's probably a stress issue, and I really think you've been keeping them a little too dry. I'd be going to twice a week 
or if we do get back to more typical 100-degree weather, even three times a week on the watering, because peppers will take that. They will survive getting pretty dry, but um, they will, you know, they'll like it better with about the same moisture that you give, uh, oh, really, tomatoes or eggplant. Eggplant's another one that people keep way too much on the dry side. But um, I'd, I'd try a little bit, you know, heavier watering. As far as a hot pepper versus sweet pepper, uh, there's no physical or um, physiological way that you're going to cause any change in the pepper. If a sweet pepper becomes pollinated by a hot pepper, it's still going to be a sweet pepper. Now, if you grow the seeds out, the next generation may be pretty mixed up in uh, their heat level and things like that. But uh, there's nothing with plant, nothing wrong with putting your, your bells right next to your uh, uh, serranos, and uh, both of them are going to taste like, respectively, bells and serranos. So don't let that be too much of a concern to you. Well, that, yeah, that, that's good to know. I mean, it's not a big deal. I've got plenty of room. Well, that's always nice. <laughs> keep, them, keep them separate. But uh, anyway, okay, what, what, one more quick question. What about cucumbers? What's the latest that I could have some more coming up? Well, latest? you know, my joking answer is about 830 because that's when it gets dark. But uh, cucumbers are going to be producing 35 to 45 days from the time you plant the seed. So if we say we're likely to get our first really chilly weather the end of October, then I'd have my last uh, planting of them in by, um, by say, the 1st of September or if September 15th at the latest. But between now and then, if you're a big fan of cucumbers, start some fresh ones about every three weeks. Okay, yeah, that's what I've done. My latest, my latest uh, set is they're they're up about twelve inches tall. Oh yeah. What what would cause on my original cucumber plants? The first ones that came out were good. My wife said the ones that we picked yesterday uh, they're starting to get that bitter taste to them. What what causes that? They're getting too dry. Okay. Uh, cucumbers. Yeah, I, I, my cucumbers get it every day or every other day, depending on the weather, and that keeps them pretty, pretty sweet. It can also be a varietal thing, um, and you probably just need to experiment on that. My, my first planting of cucumbers is uh, always one they call Persian little fingers, and then I'll follow it up with maybe some English or Japanese cucumbers and. If I'm really into cucumbers, I may even plant some of the big Armenians or some of the lemons that don't ever seem to have a problem. But uh, normally, if they're getting a little bitterness to them, they are just, you know, not getting watered as frequently as they should. If the cucumber fruit starts being deformed, not really filling out properly, that's lack of pollination. So you need to do what you can to keep your bees around. But uh, getting a little too bitter, I think you need to water very, very thoroughly and perhaps a little more often. Okay. Well, Nancy's not going to like to hear that. (laughs) Buy her a big sunbonnet so that she uh, will not feel so bad about standing out there in the heat. Oh, she, she's got one of those. She's got no problem about getting out on the John Deere, but <laughs> watering is a little bit of a so, Yeah, anyway. well, right. well again, if you ever, you know, want to go to the trouble, uh, my garden, my individual rows are on that pressure-compensated drip, 
And uh, I went ahead and spent $10 a row and put a solenoid on there and put a timer on it, just like you do a sprinkler system. And it waters on whatever schedule I set it, whether I'm in town or not. The only thing you have to watch is, you know, don't plant something that wants to go a little drier in the same row with something that wants a little bit more moisture. Uh, but there are ways, and it might make a real good birthday present, Christmas present, or whatever, to uh, get that automatic watering system going and uh, let her spend more time on, on the on the big boy toys, <laughs> not as much time with the hose in hand. She she has suggested that, and she says it's, it's on my behalf. But, you know, <laughs> know anyway, Bob, thank you for the time. You have a have a good rest of the day and and i'll try to call you back in a couple of weeks about the peppers looking forward to hearing from you lynn thank you so much uh ron's next and it'll be mike and joey and tim good morning uh let me hit the right button there this time good morning ron hey good morning bob thank you for taking my call thank you for calling bob we've got a small place in the uh country uh down south near uh, pearsall okay and uh, you turned me on to Douglas King Seed, and right. I use that common Bermuda in a lot of our pasture area and open area. But uh, we built a house, and we want to put kind of a housekeeping apron around it of Bermuda. And uh, I wondered, is it better to around that area to go with the common or with the blackjack? That's up to you. Uh, blackjack may be a little thicker. Remember, it's going to have to be, you know, in the full sun and north side of your house is going to be a little bit more shady and, um, you need to look carefully. The other thing I will always caution you about, if you have, uh, kids or even pets, Bermuda will have chiggers in it. And I do not, I'm not opposed to planting, you know, a small area of St. Augustine, which has to be from, you know, pieces of sod. You can't plant it from seed. But St. Augustine will not have chiggers. And if you've got kids or grandkids that like rolling around in the grass, uh, you might want to consider, especially on that shadier side, you might want to consider planting something other than Bermuda. But in the rest of the yard, I think it's up to you. Uh, the blackjack's probably a little bit more vigorous, but you're down in you're down in the country that Bermuda thrives, so uh, I'd go with whatever's easier for you. Now it'll be it'll be irrigated, and uh-huh. so uh, I hadn't I hadn't thought of going with St. Augustine. So uh, St. Augustine uh, fa- fairly drought tolerant in case the irrigation system goes down. Well, drought tolerant for a few days, drought tolerant for a few weeks without rain, it would not be a good thing. But um, I and and I am strongly opposed to planting acres of St. Augustine, even where you have an irrigation system, because new water is just too precious. But I can promise you, if I were in your situation, I'd have a little 20 by 20 patch of St. Augustine or something uh, for, you know, kids to enjoy and things like that, because I hate chiggers. And uh, I grew up going down to my grandfather's, owned a little piece of property outside of Dallas, and we'd go down there on the weekends to fish and shoot and things like that. And uh, we always had to fill our socks up with sulfur so the chiggers didn't eat us alive. So um, just I, I just bring it up for your own awareness. I, it might be worth considering depending on who's going to be using that yard. Okay. All right. Fair enough. I appreciate your help. Bob. And if it's if it's in the sun, uh, go for the variety of St. Augustine called Floritam. It is the one developed that was developed really for the coast by uh, University of Florida and Texas A&M. That's where they came up with that terribly unimaginative name of Floritam. <laughs> but uh, it is by far the most 
uh, sun-tolerant, most drought-tolerant of the St. Augustines, but uh, still very resistant, doesn't get the chiggers, and is very resistant to chinch bugs and some of the other problems that show up. Are there any good growers? Uh, I know uh, it's always a good idea to get your grass, if you can, that's grown as close to where you're going to put it down. Are there any good growers down in this area? Ask around. There are a couple of small growers. There used to be one that we used to get some grass from called Sweep Right. And it's interesting combination. They grew grass and swept parking lots. I don't even know if they're still around. Um, it would be worth asking around. You might ask at a couple of the feed stores because they would be likely to know. 95% of the grass still comes out of Bay City. But uh, we used to have uh, about three different pretty good grass farms. There's another one called Crenshaw Duguay, uh, D-O-U-G-E-T, that was down in that area. But I have no idea if they're still producing the good Floritam grass. But certainly be worth asking around. I'm with you. Buy it as close to home as you can. Okay. Thank you, Bob, for your help. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Ron. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Next up is Mike. Good morning, Mike. Morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Um, I was reading on uh, the internet about uh, cantaloupe continues to uh, uh, <clears throat> mellow or get better as a you know you let it sit. Is that true and correct? Well, the longer you leave it on the vine, the sweeter it becomes. But um, uh, it's pretty much going to stop producing additional sugars once it's picked so uh and it does ripen to some extent um but i'm still as long as i can keep the coyotes and the raccoons away from it i'm still going to let it get uh stay on the vine until you know it uh does what they call slip when that little stem separates from the fruit very readily that's when you know it's at the peak of perfection to pick um I can't, so maybe I just don't, I like my cantaloupe too much and I just eat it. I don't ever leave them sitting around for too long. But, uh, yeah, I, I'd, I would always, if you can, leave it on the vine uh, until the point where you just kind of touch that little connection to the cantaloupe and it pops off. That's that's the time uh, that cantaloupe are always best to pick. Yeah, I, I heard you say that once before, but I wasn't sure if I picked it, you know, uh, let's say it's ready to go in a week because I really can't tell how, when it started to grow. Because uh, I, I think I read something that it uh, could take like ninety days for it to be ready to be. That's that's so misleading. Grow. That's so misleading because it just depends on where you are. And uh, uh, I, I'll use I, I haven't timed it with uh, with cantaloupe, but I know with the uh, straight neck squash. I look at that seed package and it says it's 43 days to production. Middle of summer, I'm producing in 21 days. So don't really trust uh, what you read on the label or especially what you read on the Internet. Just just go out there and give that stem a little tug. If it comes off, uh-huh. your cantaloupe's perfect. If it's still attached, leave it a day or two longer. My problem is that the blasted possums and things seem to know exactly when it gets ripe. And I say, <laughs> okay, I'm going to leave it one more day, and I go out there the next morning, and it's half-eaten, so... Uh, um, <laughs> that's why they get hauled off to another part of the county whenever I get the opportunity. So just out of curiosity, let's say these critters get to your cantaloupe and they're half eaten. Don't you just cut off the part that's eat that, that has been eaten and eat the rest or is that not healthy? I don't know that it's a matter of health, but I usually grow enough that, uh, 
that I just that one goes into the compost pile. <laughs> There's just something there's something about dining after a possum that doesn't appeal to me. I mean, if it was the only <laughs> cantaloupe I had, I might be a little more forgiving. But uh, usually, if the critters have started in on it, then it goes into the compost pile, and uh, they either go to possum heaven or down the road a ways. <laughs> um, just for your information, I was watching the. CBS News earlier this morning, Sunday morning. Yes. And they had an article on uh, cattle mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, how we destroy most of our forests so they can be fed. And most of the corn that we grow is for the cattle so they can be fed. And, and uh, right. some scientists have discovered some, I don't know if it's an enzyme or whatever it's called, heme, H-E-M-E, hmm. that gives the beef the flavor. <clears throat> okay. They somehow... Uh, produced it. It looks like blood. They say it tastes like blood. I was going to say, that is that is the Greek or Latin word, whichever, for blood. That's interesting. Ah, and now they're uh, making these uh, hamburgers, you know, out of uh, different vegetables and stuff by adding this in- extra ingredient called hemi, and it tastes exactly like beef. I'm over there. Oh, my God, Bob, I know Bob will want to hear about this. <laughs> I'm not going to eat it. I'm glad to hear about it. But, uh, you know, this is just it's it's just so stupid the way our modern uh, agricultural production is. Uh, cows weren't meant to eat corn and um, it really affects the quality of the of the meat. And taste is one thing. But when you've got cows that have been grazed, cows that are, if not, you know, grass-fed, at least grass-finished, there's a little thing called CLA, conjugated linoleic acid, and it is the thing that keeps us from getting fat when we gorge ourselves with prime rib and steaks and all those other good things that cows produce, and cattle that come out of the feedlots, cattle that eat on that corn and all, they that meat does not contain, and so far as I know, CLA has absolutely no taste to it whatsoever. And, um, um, you know, and that's why these people that, you know, eat that, eat that corn-fed, that feedlot beef yeah. Yeah. tend to put on weight. Uh, there's a lady, I think her name is Barbara Stitt, that actually did a uh, study in one of the prisons, one of the state prisons, and I'm sure you know the difference in a jail and a prison. A prison is yeah. uh, a long-term thing for people that have been convicted of a crime. And they found that by feeding them a more organic diet, by feeding a meat that was full of CLA, the uh-huh. aggression level in the inmates went down just a huge amount. And uh, there are just a lot of reasons to, to reject this stuff that, you know, you close your eyes, you can't tell it's not meat. Your body knows it's not meat. So let you and me go on and keep on eating those uh, grass-fed steaks and let the people that live on fast food uh, eat that other stuff. And, you know, maybe maybe Darwinian effects will kick in someday. <laughs> we'll, we'll increase the average IQ of the population, which would not be a bad thing at all. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Thank you very much, Bob. It's always good to talk to you, Mike. Have a wonderful day, and uh, we'll talk again soon.
All right, back to gardening. And, Mike, I'm sure you're still listening. I just got a text from one of my uh, watchdog friends uh, who really keeps up with these things that uh, heme, H-E-M-E, or heme, however you pronounce it, is uh, a dangerous GMO genetically modified product that is frequently high in Roundup residue as well as being not good for you on its own. So uh, I'm avoiding uh, that, and I think all thinking people will. And thank you, Diane, for sending that. Uh, let's get back to the phone lines. Uh, Joey, Tim, Ann, and Terry, and uh, Joey's first. Good morning, Joey. Uh, good morning, Mr. Webster. Thank you for taking my call. Mr. Webster was my father. I'm Bob, but thank you for calling. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, I'm going to go against the grain here. Most people want to get rid of cactus right. in their yards. I actually want the cactus to spread. What do you recommend? What kind of cacti are you dealing with? Uh, just your basic prickly pear, I guess. Okay. I looked it up. There's all kinds. It's just whatever yeah. you find. Your- they're they're mostly those are uh, genus Opuntia. Um, if you want it to spread, get in there with some tongs. I think are the best things, and uh, you know a long bladed pair of pruning shears or something like that, and just whack it up in individual pads and just t- toss those pads around everywhere you want it to grow. Every pad. Uh, that you cut off will make a whole new cactus patch, um, and uh, that's probably the easiest way to go about it. Uh, you can also collect the little seed pods, little tunas, but uh, that's what Mother Nature does. Everything from the field rats to some of the bigger creatures eat that, and then the seed gets dispersed uh, through the spread of the manure. But getting it, you know, lots of it established in the easiest possible fashion, just Whack as many of those pads off as you can imagine and just pitch them around. Just be sure they make good contact with the soil underneath. They will appear to shrivel. They will start to, you know, look like they're going bad. If we go into severe drought, you might go out and dump a bucket of water on them once a month or so. But every one of those pads will make a whole new plant for you. Yes, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Let me tell you one more thing. If you want a hundred percent being able to get these things exactly where you want you can always go by a nursery get them to give you a bunch of old empty one gallon cans fill them up with anything from garden soil to potting soil you can take those individual pads and stick them down in there and pre-root them so to speak and go out and plant them but if we're looking for establishing a lot of cacti over a big area i'm just going to whack out the pads and pitch them around i'll tell you one more thing and of course it's not just for your benefit but a lot of other people listening if you don't know the spines that you see on the cacti, those will poke a hole in you. But the things I really hate, right at the base of that big spine, there are two or three dozen little tiny spines. They're called glochidia, and those things will absolutely drive you crazy. If you ever get into them, uh, take a piece of the stickiest tape. I use Gorilla Tape and rub it over the area and then rip that tape off, and that will take those little glochids out and... Um, Anybody works with cactus is going to encounter them periodically. These are from my days in West Texas, and I'll guarantee you, you'll be glad to know that. Yes, sir. Well, thank you for the information. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Joy. Let me uh, move on here and talk to Tim. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, sir. Morning. Uh, Question. Reference the cornmeal tea? Yes. Can you use that cornmeal over again with make another batch of tea with it? You probably could, but is it worth it? 
Mm, probably not. Um, you're using such a small amount, and when you can go to a feed store and buy a big bag of cornmeal or corn chops for, you know, just what they're selling for deer corn will work, you know, at five bucks a bag or something like that, I'm not going to try to save it and use it over again uh, because it would, you know, you'd have to strain it, you'd have to dry it, and then you could start over again with it. And as cheap as it is, I. I think probably fresh is at least a little better, and it is so low in price that I'm not going to bother trying to reuse it. Okay. Can you use that cornmeal sludge in the bottom of the bucket to benefit plants and uh, the yard and so forth? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, quite frankly, you know, what I do when I fill that bucket up I'm not going to try to strain it out when I'm only putting a cup to a five-gallon bucket. There's not a lot of sludge, and it just gets poured out along with the water, and I don't even rinse the buckets. I just, you know, go ahead and use the same thing over again next time. So, yeah, it, uh, it'll it benefit anywhere that you're fighting fungus, whether it's on your tomatoes, your cantaloupe, or anything else. Yeah, you put that uh, residue around the garden, and it would certainly be a benefit. But for okay. me, the time involved makes it a lot more convenient just to pour it out along with the water. Just keep it in suspension then. That's the best thing to do. It's You know, it's not the cornmeal that's the magic. It's this uh, right. fungus called trichoderma that grows on the cornmeal, and that has actually, it's formed, it's reproduced, and it's uh, throughout the water. So it doesn't really matter whether you keep the cornmeal in suspension or not. If you're doing, if you want to do any one thing that would, benefit it if there's a way you could aerate it if you got an old minnow bucket aerator or something like that and stuck down in there that's going to keep it mixed up and that higher oxygen concentration is going to help that trichoderma go even you know grow even faster but uh is it really necessary Mm, depends on what you're doing i don't think it's usually worth the trouble okay very good then Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Love the program. <laughs> Thank you so much. I do appreciate it. Let's see if we can get Ann in here before the break. Good morning, Ann. Hi. I'd like to thank you, first of all, for helping all of us. It's my great pleasure. <clears throat> my second question is, we have oak trees that send out those little root things that want to grow into plants. Right. We have two oak trees, and both of them do that. What can we do? Well, it's partly normal. That is that is one of the live oak's ways of protecting itself. And that's why, you know, the all when you see a mod of these trees, they they have a big interconnected root system. All of them are going to produce some of these root sprouts. Um typically trees that are stressed produce more. And trees can be stressed from being buried a little too deep, not having that root flare exposed. Trees can be stressed by drought. Uh, trees can be stressed by compaction over the root zone. Somebody parking, you know, over part of the root system or something. Uh, using some of the chemical herbicides or some of the high nitrogen synthetic fertilizers. All of these things will stress a tree and will make it produce more of those root sprouts. I've got a big oak in my yard that snapped off. It didn't quite separate, but this trunk's probably 15 inches in diameter. But it broke and fell over and yet remained attached 
Um, the tree's still alive. It's been about three years, and the top is still green and growing. But, man, after that tree got that kind of stress, it started making those little root sprouts everywhere. So do what you can to minimize the stress. And other than that, just mow them off or pull them up or whatever. They're just part of having oak trees. It's real, <clears throat> pardon me, it's really hard to pull them up. Yep. They just seem to be... <laughs> They seem to be stronger than I am. Let me put it that way. <laughs> I feel the same way. My friend uh, David Vaughn, that's an arborist, says that there is very, very little danger of ever spreading oak wilt by mowing them off. So you're probably better just to mow them off along with the grass. They seem to grow about twice as fast as the mm-hmm. grass. Oh, yeah. So yep. is there, if you like weed eat them down lower, would that discourage them at all? Or It'll slow just- them down. It'll slow them down, but it won't get rid of them. I don't dial right this second, though, because every line is taken. But uh, I'm just about to say good morning to Terry, and then there'll be another line available. In order, it's going to be Terry and Chris and John and Richard. Let's just get back to gardening. Good morning, Terry. Good morning. Good morning. I have a question on plumerias. Okay. Do you fertilize them? Absolutely, yes. And uh, with what kind of fertilizer? Any good liquid organic fertilizer. Um, Medina makes a couple of good liquid organics. Uh, Espoma makes uh, a good liquid organic. Fox Farms and their Happy Frog label make good liquid organic fertilizers. I'd feed them every couple of weeks if you want the best growth and maximum fragrant flowers. Okay. Are they better in the ground or in pots? Well, you have to protect them in the winter. Uh, I mean, yes. at 31 degrees, they turn to, to just Much. melt. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they're easier to move around uh, in, you know, in pots. Now, having said that, I know plenty of people that plant them in the ground in the spring, then dig them up in the fall and just let them lie there dormant in the garage or wherever over the winter months, and then they replant them back out. But I would prefer to keep them in a pot because I think it makes for stronger plants and makes them bloom earlier and have more flowers if they've, even though they, they go semi-dormant. You don't want to totally stop watering them in the winter, but um, you cut way back on the water. They don't grow as much, but they sure do come out faster in the spring if you can leave them in a pot. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for your information. And you enjoy. They are one of the most fragrant, beautiful plants out there and so easy and lots of fun new colors out there, too. Terry, thank you for the call. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. uh, Next up is uh, right down here on line number four would be Chris. Good morning, Chris. Hey. Good morning. Hey, good morning. I had a question about pomegranates. A while back you said something to spray on them so they would, um, well, I have a wonderful pomegranate tree. Let me start with that. Okay. And I get fruit, but it, they never develop the whole way. Okay. Or they get brown on yep. the inside. They don't. So what do I do? Well, regular watering is one of the most important things. Pomegranates are very drought tolerant, but the fruit will be much lower quality because typically about the time the fruit is growing, we're moving into really hot, really dry weather. So be sure you're giving them a good thorough soaking every four or five days. Um, There are several fungal diseases that start on the outside and kind of work their way in. I think one of the easiest things is uh, to make your corn water tea, soak some whole ground cornmeal in water and spray them with that. Um, You could also spray with neem oil if you do it either early or late in the day. 
or any of the good organic fungicides, things that contain mm-hmm. things like the Bacillus subtilis. But that is a that is a fungal disease, and any natural non-toxic fungicide will help. But the number one mm-hmm. thing is be sure those trees are getting thoroughly watered a little bit more frequently than uh, most people do. All right. That was it. That's one, one question. You report back to me how much you're enjoying your pomegranates. Okay, I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, Thank Chris. You. Hey, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, John's up next. Good morning, John. Morning, Bob. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself today? Still too early to complain. <laughs> that doesn't stop some people, but my kind of people don't. <laughs> <laughs> so we're on the same wavelength. Yes, sir. I got three quick questions. Okay. Uh, first one, I use. Can I use the has to grow like on my tomatoes and my peppers? I do. I do. Be sure it's has to grow plant, not has to grow lawn, but has to grow plant. But, uh, yeah, I use the dry fertilizer when I, you know, first set things out or actually before I set them out. But when they're up and growing, I try to about every two weeks follow it up with a has to grow or I'm also experimenting with uh, Medina's new liquid fish and having very good results. I try to do it every two weeks. I probably actually get it done about every three weeks. But it makes a big difference in production and how well they continue to produce through the summer. That I was just curious because I use the lawn stuff. I buy it by the gallon and, and spray it in the lawn. And I was just curious. I was You answered the question about <laughs> I was going to spray that on there. No, 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 no. I yeah. made that mistake one time, and I burned the heck out of my tomatoes. So That's do not use, enough. yeah, do not use has to grow lawn. Use has to grow plant. Big difference. Okay. Okay. And, uh. Second one is whenever you're making, I make compost tea. Yes, sir. Um, can I pour some whole ground cornmeal in that and, and kind of mix it together? Would you it certainly can. Yeah, you certainly can. The thing, especially in the summer months, is you don't want to overstimulate your compost tea because naturally when the water is warmer, uh, those microbes, be they bacterial or fungal, are reproducing much more quickly, and populations can build up to the point that it depletes the oxygen, and then your good guys go away and you get the bad guys started. So this is one place where if a little's good, a lot's better. Uh, don't do that. Uh, if you If you add cornmeal, just add a small amount, maybe a teaspoon per gallon, and uh, you might actually cut back on the molasses or some of the other uh, grains or things like that, fish products that you may be adding to make your compost tea. I just, I really worry when we get into July and August, you really have to be careful about overstimulating because if um, if compost tea goes anaerobic on you, uh, it's not much good and you can actually get some pretty bad stuff started there. Okay, because all I do is I pour uh, one cup of compost uh, about half a cup of molasses and then a little small amount of fish oil and then i was just curious about the uh, and i use a little aerator in a bucket sure sure and i was just yeah. curious about the cornmeal throw in a little bit of liquid seaweed uh throw in a small amount of uh cornmeal and you're just getting better and better all righty and the last question is i've got a, a four-year-old and a six-year-old and I, they're begging me to buy them a pet so i was thinking about chickens Okay. Benefit the yard and benefit me and benefit them. <laughs> I I had chickens when I was five years old or six years old. I my mom 
made sure that we as kids and, you know, just God bless her, she did so many things just to be sure we had the maximum um, experience uh, possible as a child. And I think I had rabbits when I was eight. I had chickens when I was six. And uh, um, Dr. Kirby would be the one to answer all your questions, of course, about chickens. But uh, they're not something they're going to cuddle with, but they can sure learn a lot from them. And uh, rabbits are another thing that are uh, your sort of non-typical pet. Uh, but I sure enjoyed my, my bunny rabbits when we were growing up. I would not get ducks. Uh, chickens are messy. Ducks are in a whole nother category. You will never go barefoot again if you're around ducks. I'll promise you that. But uh, uh, you might call back on Dr. Kirby's show sometime, and he can tell you which varieties of chickens are going to be the best, the hardiest, because... Uh, I mean, he lives right on the edge of Alamo Heights and has a chicken coop in the backyard. So, yeah, it's uh, chickens are, are just fine, but uh, uh, there's a lot to know about different kinds of chickens. Uh, probably wouldn't get roosters because roosters can be aggressive and they can hurt you if they spur you. But uh, having a few hens around would probably be a real good thing to teach those kids where eggs come from. All righty, Bob, I appreciate it, and thank you for all your help. It's always a pleasure. You get out and have a good Sunday. And uh, I'll get one more call in at least before we have to take our next break, and that would be Richard. Good morning, Richard. I might have hit the wrong button there. Let's do this. Uh, good morning, Richard. Good morning. Morning, sir. <clears throat> My son has about a 25-foot-tall palm tree. Okay. Do you know what kind of palm? No. Okay. They actually got four of them. Okay. And one of them is apparently dying or is probably dead now. Okay. And you're wondering oh. why? Why? Yeah, one. Okay. All the other. It would be good to know what kind of palm tree because there are some palm trees that are very hardy, especially when it comes to cold hardiness, uh, and there's some that, you know, can be damaged by cold, and sometimes the cold of last winter doesn't show up until the heat of summer. Um, the most cold-hardy palm trees out there are called windmill palms. Uh, there's a shorter palm. I'm sure this is not a, you know, Mediterranean palm or a, a Sabal palm because those make little clumping palms. But two palms that are quite commonly planted, one of them is what they call the queen palm, which is very badly damaged by cold. The other is there's something called a Mexican fan palm. Washingtonia is its botanical name, and they're two different forms. And my suspicion is that this palm tree was probably damaged last winter because the only part of a palm tree that is actually alive and growing is right up there in the crown. And if it gets too cold, and the cold we had was it late October, early November, that was enough to damage the queen palms and some of the um, some of the Washingtonias. And they sit there, and the foliage that's on them looks good for several months afterwards. But the living, growing part of the palm tree is dead, and then by the time next summer comes around then the tree just slowly deteriorates. So if you can find out what kind of palm, if he even knows, I can give you a little bit better answer. It is possible there is one type of grub. It's the larval state of these big old things called a rhinoceros beetle. 
that sometimes gets down into right kind of down in the club foot right at the base of the palm tree below ground level and occasionally but not often I will see these things do enough damage that a palm tree will actually die but it's really fairly rare um, I most likely think that that tree got some cold damage last winter and it's just starting to show up now and sadly there's not a thing you can do about it the good news is it's not something that spreads from tree to tree and if the other trees for whatever reason did not get quite as cold they're probably going to go on living and growing just fine and just pray that we don't get a super cold winter because uh um, I, I would guess probably 70% of the palm trees out there. If we had one of those really severe winters that we get about every 40 years, I'd be willing to bet you that probably 70% of the palm trees in San Antonio would die because they are the less hardy, faster-growing ones. Um, if you, your son, or your friends plant any more, be sure that you're planting windmill or sayball or pindo or dwarf mediterranean fan palms those are the most more cold hardy ones and unfortunately there are a lot of people out there both in the nursery business and on the side of the road selling the mexican fan palms and the queen palms that are always going to be damaged when we have a real bad cold spell is it true that they're mainly water um all plants um have a high moisture content Palms have more a higher moisture content than, say, an oak tree or an elm tree because the structure is totally different. You know, you're taking me back to my old days of teaching biology. One, um, a, an oak tree, an elm tree, a woody tree has a central core of dead cells called xylem, has a small group of live cells on the outer ring and then outside of that it has a tissue called phloem which is what takes the or takes the nutrients from the leaves down to the roots so a tree like that is much there's much more cellulose much more wood and much less water a palm tree is a whole different type of tree we call a monocot that has a um, a, a stem that is largely water it has that xylem and phloem and little things called vascular bundles that are scattered all the way through the trunk that's why we don't worry about root flares in palm trees is totally unimportant there but yes i would say the moisture content in an oak tree might be five to ten percent the moisture country content in a palm tree is probably 60 to 80 percent so yeah there's a lot more moisture in a palm tree there is than there is in a woody tree but either way, you'll have to have a company come cut it down. Um, it's it is the the problem with a palm tree is that it is a very fibrous material. It doesn't cut like wood does. Um, you can cut them with a chainsaw, but it, it's somebody that is experienced with the chainsaw should be doing it. And you want to be sure that your chain is really really sharp. And of course, always wear the protective equipment. Always wear the, you know, the uh, helmet, the face shield. That goes whether you're cutting a little tiny piece of an oak tree or a great big palm tree. But palm trees can be cut with a chainsaw. Uh, it's just like everything else. Just do it very, very carefully. But they will saw very well, especially with a really good sharp chain. No, I'll have a company do it because twenty-five feet tall. Yeah. Well. It's going to make a pretty good thud when it comes down. but And this is a company, I'll just be totally honest with you, you do not need to pay for the best of the best when it comes to an arborist. This is a job that I, 
Hack, Whack, and Stacker can do for you. The one thing that is super important is anytime you hire anyone to do any kind of cutting like that, uh, require them to show you a certificate of insurance um, to show you that their workers are protected and your property is protected because with our crazy weird laws these days in our liberal court system. Um, if one of their guys that comes to cut it down hurts himself on your property, he can turn around and sue you. So your reputable companies will always carry insurance that protects you. And I would sure ask to see that because you don't need to go hire the best arborist out there to do that. Anybody that's skilled, um, with cutting down trees with a chainsaw can do it, but protect yourself. Be sure that company has insurance. Any recommendations? Um, ye, try, try tree, T-R-E-E, tree wise men. Okay. Um, if we're now, I like to say, if we were, if we were talking a company that where you needed to get arborist, man, it'd be utter tree care would be the top of my list. But in this case, you don't need that kind of knowledge level. You need just a good skill level. And Jordy Hagen owns tree wise men and they do a, they, they've taken out some trees from my business partner, did a very good job at a very reasonable price. Yeah, he needs to get it out because they're coming in to start a pool. <laughs> That's, the nice thing about it, too, is a palm tree doesn't have a big widespread woody root system. Most of the roots are concentrated right around the base of the tree, and it's not going to be a big job to get it out of there. Would it be hard to pull another one that's closer to the house and put it where they take the one out? Or is that not worth it? Um, Again, these things are heavy. And in the middle of the summer, the nice thing about transplanting as opposed to planting a palm tree, transplanting a palm tree, uh, you do not have to get a big root ball. You can take one of the, your other existing trees that, uh, uh, and you can, you can dig it and move it with getting a very small root ball. But if this thing is, how, how tall is the one that you would want to move? Probably around 12 feet. Okay, that thing's probably going to weigh four to 600 pounds. Um, so get somebody that has the right equipment, but palm trees are among the easiest of trees to transplant in July and August are the months of the year that you do that. So, uh, yeah, if you want to do that, I wouldn't put it right in the same spot, but you can move two feet away and do just fine with it. Sounds good. Thank you, Bob. Good questions. Thanks for the call, Richard. <laughs> Bye. Thank you. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Terry, Jim, Mark, and Leonard. And Terry's up first. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good. How about you today? So far, so good. Thanks. I haven't had time to hurt myself enough yet. <laughs> sound like one of our employees that says uh, the day's not complete until he bleeds. Just don't do it to excess. That's right. Yeah, no chainsaws allowed or anything like that. Dangerous. So. <laughs> what is it they say? Get away from that wheelbarrow. You don't know nothing about machinery, boy. <laughs> <laughs> you bet. So I have a live oak tree. It's about a thirty-six inch diameter, and um, it has a spider web growing up from the ground on up, uh, mostly on the north side. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting up there about uh, 12, 15 foot down some of the major limbs. Yeah, that, that's not a spider web. That is something called a bark louse. It is totally harmless to the tree. 
In fact, uh, the little creature, you know, consumes some of the dead material, some of the detritus and things like that. If you don't like the look of it, you can dilute a little bit of ammonia down and spray it around, but it is totally harmless to your tree. Uh, it's nice when these guys show up around Halloween because it creates a really spooky look. But uh, that's that's just something called the bar klaus, and don't worry about it. It's not doing anything bad to your trees. Okay, very good, Bob. i got enough work to do without tapping something I don't need to do. <laughs> and especially if it involves getting up on a ladder. Sometimes that involves broken bones as well as bleeding. So uh, stay down on the ground and, and, and find other things. But, no, that's a great question. Uh, they always start showing up at this time of year, sometime a little bit later in the summer, but absolutely nothing to be concerned about. Okay, I'm going to tell my wife, Bob said don't touch it. She can, so. she can call me back for confirmation if she needs. Okay, get your hearing aid. I mean, your hearing aid. <laughs> did I did I tell you what I was remembering somebody's old saying the other day that said uh, if a man speaks in the woods and a woman no woman is present to hear him is he still wrong? Every single one of them says yes. So <laughs> you get out and have a good day, and uh, let me move on here and talk to Jim. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. I've got a thirty foot tall pecan tree. The bark uh, is peeling off and underneath it is like dark rust color okay any idea what's going on there that part of the tree has been um it, is it at all like fuzzy or is it uh really smooth um is it discolored in any way other than the rusty look tell me what not the bark but what the area underneath looks like no, it's it's not fuzzy. It looks like um, additional bark. Okay. But the bark is real rusty looking, dark rust. Okay. Um, I don't think it's any cause for concern. Um, we see that uh, sometimes if a tree's been hit by lightning. Uh, we see that if a tree has been literally bruised in some fashion. Uh, we sometimes see that if a tree is, you know, buried too deeply. But if it looks like new bark, if it's not like a polished wood look, then uh, the tree's just sloughing off some bark. It and they do this all the time. A tree is always producing new bark to the out inside, and you know, shr just shrugging off some of the old bark on the outside. So I'm not concerned. The foliage looks good. The growth on the tree looks good. Yes, it's, everything else looks normal. Yeah. And we did have some bad lightning. I've lost my transformer and several things inside the house. Uh, yeah, thank goodness we didn't lose you like we lost those people in under a tree up in the northeast sometime recently. Um, do look at the base of the tree and be sure that root flare is exposed. Be sure the trunk doesn't look like a you know fence post sticking up out of the ground. But um, there's absolutely nothing you can do. But I don't think there's any cause for concern. I think it's gonna you're gonna find new bark developing underneath, and your tree should continue to do well. Okay, very good. Appreciate your program. Always a pleasure. I appreciate the call this morning. Thank you, sir. Okay, let's go ahead and talk to Mark. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Well, <laughs> busy time still. I was going to say, you sound tired at 930 in the morning because your to-do list is about as long as mine, and you're thinking, oh, man, how am I ever going to get all this done? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the tomatoes finally kicked in, the Juliet's especially. Good. So we're getting a whole lot of those now. Um, so one of the questions is, are, are you trying? Do you have the early blight 
your tomatoes? Knock on wood, I have zero early blight in my garden. I plant it a little bit later than I normally do, and I really give that uh, whole ground cornmeal. I do that when I'm, uh, you know, planting the plants, and uh, I have to say at this point I've got zero early blight to worry about. Oh, some of ours, it's just, well, I was spraying them early on because they were getting fungus problems when they were small, but but I haven't done anything lately. It's just creeping up the plants on a lot of them. Yeah, I get that corn water tea out and get after it. You're probably going to well, plant some new ones next month uh, to go on into the fall. But, you know, the Juliets, the Sun Golds, the Sweet 100s, those things can keep producing all summer long. Now, your bigger fruited tomatoes, they're going to play out, you know, in the next uh, four weeks probably as we get into hotter July weather. So you may want to just let them go. But I tell you, the indeterminates in the cherries, I think it's worth the effort to try to slow the early blight down. Well, we, we've never replanted, partly because we're always gone the first week of August, and it's <laughs> okay. kind of hard to plant then. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so ours have always kept producing pretty much. But, um, uh, yeah. And, well, if you're spraying, though, the tomatoes are just so lush, mm-hmm. it's, it's, there's absolutely no way you can get to every leaf or even half the leaves. No. And then, so you know, the yellow portion, if you have the time and want to pick those leaves off, um, you can go ahead and do so because those leaves are going to turn brown and go away anyway. And if you've got a strong thumbnail like I do, or if you want to get a little pair of micro shears to do it, and you want to thin out some of that yellowed foliage so that you can get your spray to penetrate better, then uh, then you can certainly do that. But I just do the best job you can on it. Well, is there any point in spraying if you're only going to get like 20% of the leaves covered? Um, you're going to get more than that, but yeah, everything you do is going to, you know, it's like saying I got into the cactus patch. I'm never going to get all the thorns pulled out. Should I just forget about it or should I pull out everything that I can? I'm going to pull out everything you can. Okay. But it's going to still creep, creep up to the leaves that aren't. Well, one of the problems that they're so lush, there's, there's not much air, you know, they're seven feet tall and and still going. And that's my next point. A lot depends on the weather. If it stays dry, if it stays breezy, it's not going to spread as quickly. If it stays overcast, cloudy, humid with no air movement. Yeah. It's going to continue to be an increasing problem, but I don't do weather. I only do plants. I'm not that crazy. I'm crazy, but not that crazy. Yeah. Okay. Is there any point in cutting back the the indeterminates at some point? Would they come out if we cut them way back at some point? I don't think you gain anything. Okay. Now, if you want to start some cuttings, if you want to root some of those cuttings and replant, uh, pretty darn easy to do. And the indeterminates, the little tips on the branches root easily. But anytime you cut them back, you're, you're losing some production. So it's not something I do. Well, I was, I was thinking I might do that. The, the ones that had the blight at the bottom, do you think they would they would green out if we cut them back? The part that had the blight, would, they, would that green mm, out again? They're only going to branch out in areas that get good sunlight. So yeah, okay. if the plants are super thick, they're not likely to start branching from the base. They will produce new growth, but it's going to okay. be from higher up on the plant where it gets the sun. I might I might try some a little bit later. Sure. We have 40 plants, so we have plenty to mess with. There you but, go. Yeah, they're so thick, so there's not much air going around them. Yeah. And and what do you do when they get to seven feet? They're above your cages, and and <laughs> they just mine just they kind of fall over the edge of the cage. Yeah. I've had them grow all the way back down to the ground, take root, and continue growing. Yeah. 
Okay. They tell okay. me there is one. I have not seen it, but if you're driving up the volcano on the big island of Hawaii, they say there's somewhere up there that there is one tomato plant that's two miles long along the road. <laughs> so those those indeterminates can uh, can grow for a long time, and they kind of take root as they go, and uh, they 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 can be quite substantial. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, we have the our, our our biggest peach tree is kind of chlorotic, and I think it's because it's it's got like twelve inches of soil, and then it's caliche. Mm-hmm. And then we also we also have a, a Monterey oak that's been kind of yellowish. And a guy at, the, at a, one of the nurseries in Austin recommended MicroLife Acidifier. Are you familiar with that product? I don't know that one. Okay. I don't know that it's one. Not, I I'm it, not into much into soil acidification because it's a temporary fix, and you're dumping alkaline water on it every time you apply water and where you've got a lot of granite up there you know you, it, the soil's not going to stay acidic i i'm still a fan of things like the magic sand and uh, it can also be you know like a nitrogen so be sure you're feeding regularly but um uh, part of okay. it is you know it's just an old peach tree too they they don't live forever we got we got some green sand but this this has Fish, molasses, hematite, it's got a whole lot of stuff. Well, as long as it's not bumped up with synthetic nitrogen, it sounds like a good product if they put all those things in it. I would give it a try and see. It says it's 14% sulfur, and it's potassium sulfate and iron sulfate. Mm -hmm. Is that a problem, do you think? Um, It's not going to last, right? Well, it's not going to last, and sulfur is a natural fungicide. Sulfur will... Okay. Be somewhat damaging. A little bit of sulfur is very good for soil fungi. A lot of sulfur is very bad for soil fungi. A lot of people okay. use it because it, you know, it is a natural fungicide. It's a lot of people up in your area use it to try to cut back on the cottony root rot so they can go apples. But yeah. um okay. I you know, all things in moderation. I right. it doesn't sound like a bad product, but I wouldn't okay. overdo the use of it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um the uh, the peaches the uh, the insects finally kind of took off yeah and 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 well our harvester tree it's the biggest peaches we've ever had but they're the insects are getting to them before they're anywhere near ripe mm-hmm. and so I basically went up there with this wedding veil fabric we have and wrapped up a couple dozen of them in that and that's probably the only ones we're going to get out of the tree oh wow because, yeah because we can't pick them that early to beat the bugs yep and it's it's a typical thing we have all the time where the, the peaches will look okay when you pick them, and we set them out here on the table, and at some point there's a spot or the whole thing just kind of goes to mush. And a lot of that is uh, is either fungal or bacterial. Um, if you have the time, um, start a little earlier in the season and just make sort of a cover spraying with the corn water tea or even hydrogen peroxide or something. Uh, that'll keep a lot of that off of the peach and... Um, all you have to worry about is the birds eating them. Uh, if you can cut back a little bit more on that. Yeah, yeah. Last year we had an orchard Orioles, and boy, they were a problem. <laughs> the, uh, the the golden fronted woodpeckers eat the same peach. They come oh, yeah? back and eat the same one. But the right. Orioles would go to a new peach each time. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. Last thing. The uh, as well, most years the hummingbirds left like early August uh-huh. last year, and this year again. About half of them have left about now. Okay. They're they're leaving two two three weeks early. So I don't know why. But <laughs> I suspect that, you know, just a lot of the 
Um, we had just such an abundance of wildflowers and everything else. And now I don't know about you, but I'm down to mostly Gallardia and Monarda are the two wildflowers that are out there. And I think that there was just such, you know, such a large number of things for them. And a lot of their natural food sources, uh, been depleted to some sort, to some extent. So who knows, they may... Uh, who can? Who knows the why of why yeah, the hummingbirds right. come and go? Do right. you have mainly ruby, thro- ruby throats and violet chins? Um, right, right. Yeah. I, one year, and I'm thinking about this because uh, my partner just got back from uh, Colorado, and they have that. I think it's the broad-tailed hummingbird that sounds like. I mean, it rattles when it flies. It sounds like an incoming mortar round, sort of. Wow. <laughs> and one year. They, she had one in her yard for about two weeks before it moved on. Do you get any of the more unusual ones passing through, or yours pretty much the uh, the ones no, that we have? We've only seen maybe three or four unusual ones over the years. Uh-huh. Um, there's like one broad tail. Yeah. Uh, in the winter, we'll get some that stay for weeks, and then three years ago, we had a a um um rufus. Oh, oh, the red one. Yeah, the rufus. rufus. Hummingbird yeah. was here all winter. Yeah, we have those. It was, a ma- it, it was a young male, and we got to watch it turn to its beautiful colors, <laughs> you know, through the winter. It was really neat. So, but it, that was fun. Otherwise, it's just the normal stuff. Yeah. Yep. Well, so. it's fun to watch still. You guys have yeah. a uh, great Sunday, and uh, I'll look forward to visiting again. Okay, great. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, Mark. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye. All right, let's get back to gardening. Uh, Leonard, John, Bobby, and Bill in that order. And uh, we start with Leonard. Good morning, sir. Good morning there, Mr. Bob. How are you? I'm doing well. How about you today? Not bad for an old man. <laughs> you better get down here to Rockport and catch that sound trout. Oh, man, I tell you what. Life is just too busy you know i I know i've got my priorities all screwed up but uh (laughs) eh, yeah i took the dog swimming the other day at least got up to the lake but uh i'll make it down there i'll make it down there and uh and and give those fish a little uh, a little exercise so to speak you might you might want to let it cool off a little bit (laughs) Uh, i've got good long sleeves and a big hat and you know it's uh you put up with a lot when you just get the chance to get out and fish, and it's never a bad thing. That's right. Uh, my uh, kids went to Costa Rica, and they brought me back these seeds from a plant. They showed me a picture of it, a fruit. Okay. It's a really ugly-looking thing. Uh-huh. They said it's delicious, and they brought me the seeds. They want me to plant it. I said, I don't know if them things are growing this part of the country from Costa Rica. <laughs> Do you have any uh, idea? Was it just called, is it called ugly fruit, or... Do you know what it no, is? It's got like little big spikes all around it, and you cut it in two and you know peel it. Mm, yeah, and it's got this seed inside, so I don't know what. Well, the name for it, but I couldn't pronounce it. Ah, uh, yeah, it. Uh, I think I know what you're talking about. It's again, if you want to get a really big pot, what I would do is probably you know plant it up in a small pot. You're going to have to have a greenhouse to put it in in the winter. But you can tell them if that if they're that interested in having it, they can come over and build you a greenhouse, and you'll see if you can grow some more fruit. It's kind of like mangoes. Um, I mean, if okay. you if you wanted to, you could grow them, and that only cost you twenty or thirty dollars a pound. Um, but it's the, the things you get in in Central America that you get from a tropical region is because they're tropical plants, 
And if you want to create a, you know, a tropical environment, you can do that. But it's uh, uh, it's expensive and it's a lot of trouble and it's very little return. <laughs> it's kind of like going yeah. to Hawaii and bringing back uh, a lot of the really exotic stuff from over there. It's always fun yeah. until that first freeze comes along and then you wonder, why did I get myself into this? So it's up well, to you. I was just wondering if it would grow up down here. Right? It will grow until it freezes. Yeah, it'll grow until it freezes. Well, so what would I plant this seed in the shop? Just lay it on top of some sand or I, no, cover I, it a little bit? I'd plant it in any soil that drains well, and I'd plant the seed about an inch deep. Inch deep, all yeah. right. Keep it warm, Thank keep much, it Bob. moist, but not soggy. And uh, it should germinate, probably take about two weeks to germinate, and it'll probably grow about, uh, oh, three or four inches a week when it starts coming up. And... Uh, then you can call me and ask how to build a greenhouse about October or so. Okay. Uh, uh, perlite wouldn't be good. Ah, you can mix some perlite in with the soil to loosen it up a little bit if you want to, but I sure wouldn't start it in per- straight perlite. All right. Thank you, Bob. You're sure welcome. Thanks for the call. <laughs> Bye. Bye. All right. I'm going to take one more call and then do a break, and that call will be John. Good morning, John. Hi, Bob. Howdy. How are you doing? Good. Good. Uh, I bought a tree uh, years ago, back in 1991, uh, out 35 going south. There was a tree farm, and I know you've mentioned that you're not too fond of it. I think this is the one that you don't you don't care for. It's but I'm, I bought it. I didn't know I was too young. Okay, but it's a uh, live oak, I think. No is live oak. Difference between the live oak and it's it's a, it grew real quick. Yeah. It's it's probably one of what they call hybrid live oaks. It probably hybrid live yeah oak. could have yeah. been storm nursery, could have been Aldridge or a bunch of them down there. And they're an okay. excellent they're an excellent tree. Um, they yeah, just oh, are really? they are susceptible oak wilt, so they are oh, not a tree I, that I'd recommend planting in North San Antonio oh, or in the hill country. Man. But um, I, it doesn't mean that they're going to get oak wilt. I mean, live oaks. Oh, I and don't the, think it's oak wilt, sir. I, it's kind of like, uh, I mean, it looks pretty good, but a couple branches look like they're they don't have many as many leaves on them as I thought they would. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's oak wilt though, but no, that's that's uh, probably not oak wilt. That's uh, uh, but the gardener it, next door said it, it it would come out if I watered it, but we've been we've had all that rain and it's still not coming out. I don't know why. Well, it takes time. And uh, so are you down in sandy soil? Where where do you well, live, John? No, I'm uh, Jones Bossberger in a Bitters area. Okay. North. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the care you give that tree, don't expect to see any change probably for two or three months afterwards. They don't, they're not like a tomato plant. They don't respond quickly. And what, we've had. What kind of care do you mean? Like. Uh, like watering. Watering. Yeah. Okay. And so if if the majority of the tree looks good, if the newest growth that's coming out on the tips of the branches that have leaves, uh, okay. if that looks good, stop worrying. The tree's just fine. Okay. There, there's so many things. It could have been a squirrel decided to chew on the bark on these branches oh, that don't have any leaves. That happens, that happens all the time. Yeah. Um, well, so, see, I'm looking out my window, and I can see uh, leaves on the ends of them like you said but yeah. like some of the other branches don't have leaves on them but 
there are leaves on the ends. Yeah. Well, if ninety percent of the tree looks, it. if the ninety percent of the tree oh, looks yeah. good, then I I would I not be worried. Ninety percent yeah. at least. Do look at okay. the base of the tree. Be sure that you can see what we call the root flare. You be sure you can see where that brace base broadens as it gets down toward the ground. If it I is, can see, sir, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I can see uh, roots kind of uh, when I mow around it. Uh, it's those roots seem to get bigger and bigger every time I mow, like yeah. over the years. Then I, I mean, yeah, uh, it doesn't sound okay. to me like that tree has a problem. Sound to me like it's doing fine and just oh, okay. is doing what they do periodically. And it could be a little yeah. squirrel damage, could be a little storm damage, but uh, right, I it gets a lot of sun on that side too. I mean, yeah. it's intense. Oh, that's fine on that that's, side of the house. That's what that tree likes. Okay. And what would you say this tree was again? It's probably uh, one of what they call a hybrid live oak. Oh, okay. There were two or three, yeah, there were two or three nurseries down there on 35. The biggest one was called Premont Nursery, and I'm sorry, yeah. Storm Nursery. They were down in Premont. Oh, okay. But they there just... Lot, there was just a lot of oak trees, and we just got our pick. Yeah, they, uh, they just have selectively bred... And they have some of them that grow a little bit faster than the ones that you see all over the hill country. So I'm yeah. pretty sure you're looking at just a hybrid live oak, and I don't think you really right. have a problem there. Okay, well, I sure appreciate it. My pleasure, Thanks John. Thanks for your help. Thank Always. you very much. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines, and Bobby is first. Good morning, Bobby. Hey, Bob, thank you so much for taking my call. Thank you for calling. How can I help? Hey, I've got a couple of questions. One about a little gym magnolia okay. we planted. I, I, I'm out south of I-10 around Schulenburg, and we planted this tree a couple of months ago, and, and it, it was probably six feet high or so when we planted it. Mm-hmm. But it, it's lost a, it dropped a bunch of leaves initially, and uh, and, 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 and it's the leaves that go up. The, the the branches the, the tips are maintaining their leaves and they still have some blooms on them. Okay. Um, just wondered if, if if we didn't plant it deep enough or get it get it get it you know in the hole just right. I I doubt if that has really much of anything to do with it. And when you're planting, it's always best to have it planted too shallow rather than planted too deeply. Um, when you think about magnolias. Um, they really, you know, you've seen the big old Southern Magnolias in Alabama and across that part of the world. They always have a lot of limbs low to the ground that are shading the ground and keeping that soil a little bit cooler. Your young tree hasn't begun to grow to that size. So I tell people, if you're planting a baby gym or any other Magnolia, plan on putting your mulch like three inches deep over the root zone, not all the way up to the trunk. But um, do everything you can to keep the roots cooler, um, two to three inches of mulch, and water regularly. Uh, you're over where your soil drains fairly well, and you have plenty of soil. So uh, feel down when that soil is dry, at, right at the base of the tree. Give it another thorough watering. Give that tree six months to get established. Its roots are going to spread out, and watering is not going to be so critical. But right now, that tree, you're going to be watering it practically like it was still on a pot sitting up on top of the ground i think you're looking at two things i think you've let it get a little dry at some point 
and um, I think you probably don't have enough mulch over the root zone. You correct those two things, that little gem will do great for you. How far out from the base or should should you run the mulch? Probably 12, 18 inches? About as far as you think the roots extend. I would say 18 inches is good now. Two years from now, I'm probably going to want it six or eight feet out. Okay. And okay. don't, don't on this tree, don't trim the lower limbs. I mean, if you're going to grow a magnolia tree, you're going to have to put up with the fact that you can't sit underneath it because... Uh, the healthiest, best magnolias around, you're always going to have limbs practically touching the ground. The trees that I see really get into trouble. Usually if a home gets sold and somebody new moves in and they say, oh, I'm going to trim up this magnolia tree. And then two years later, they're calling me and asking me why it's thinning out and dying. Uh, that magnolia just wants to be able to cast a lot of shade on the ground at the base of the tree. So it's a great tree and big fragrant flowers. It doesn't grow quite as quick, but it sure is uh, easier to grow. So I think you're off to a good start. I just think mulch and probably uh, maybe a little bit more regular water. And when that soil at the base of the tree is dry a half inch th- deep, it's time to water again thoroughly. Okay, okay, Bob, thank you. One more question about about our oaks. We we every year we plant two or three live oaks on our place, and uh, and we we probably got about ten or twelve out there that are I don't know twelve fifteen feet high, but the limbs are are, are drooping down you know to where it's hard to mow around. That's yeah, that's partly normal. Let me put you on hold. Talk to you off the air. This is KTSa San Antonio, and why don't we just go back to phone calls? Good morning, Bill. Hey, Bob. Good morning. Uh, well, the problem that's caused my downsizing of me <laughs> to a retirement place and leaving behind good gardens and, and now have only a small portion of a small balcony yes, that sir. also has some shade on it. But I was wondering, you are talking about some uh, good peppers that kind of sound like they had a Japanese name to them? They're called the Shishito, S-H-I-S-H-I-T-O. They are truly the most productive pepper I have ever grown, and I've grown a lot of peppers. They are mild enough in flavor that you can eat them, but they have enough uh, heat to them to have a good flavor. They've probably become the number one appetizer at a lot of the uh, brew pubs and places like that around. I know some people eat them raw, but I know a lot of people will just blister them in an iron skillet and serve them with ranch dressing. I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Uh, You should see some more of them available in the nurseries in about two weeks as the fall plants start coming out. But a small balcony would be a great place to grow a nice crop of shishitos. Okay, now... Would those be maybe like size, something like the real grandy gold peppers, something like that? They're a little Uh, bit. With a lot of peppers? The peppers are going to be the size, a little bit smaller than a banana pepper. Oh, okay, that big. Yeah, the plants are very compact. The plants, gosh, my plants probably aren't more than 12 or 14 inches tall, but they're maybe uh 15 18 inches wide and there must be 50 peppers on every plant so they're not going to take up a lot of room they're they're truly the most productive pepper along with being just an absolutely delicious pepper to eat it sounds like what you're saying i'm I'm looking for plants as opposed to seed yeah yeah i you you may find the seed but uh the problem with seed you know your smallest package you get is going to have about 
20 times more seed than you need. Yeah. And a yeah. lot of people are figuring out how good the shishitos are. So a lot of the growers are producing them. And like I say, we're getting right to the time of year that we start seeing tomatoes and peppers and eggplant back available as small plants. So keep your eyes open, and I think they'll do fine on your balcony for you. How soon do you think you'd get some of those in? I'm hoping in the next week or 10 days. Okay. And how late are you all? What are your hours on Tuesday? We are uh, Monday through Saturday. We're 9 to 5. Sundays were 10 till 4. So Tuesdays are going to be 5 o'clock. We're always there a little later doing paperwork. Give us a call and let us know you're coming. But uh, you can count on 9 to 5. Doors wide open. Okay. And then one other thing. What about a uh, tomato like? Use something like a Juliet or the uh, 994 or whatever? It depends. Yeah, and we'll be getting a lot more of those. Um, You know, with a small place like that, I would be looking probably for a little more compact tomato, maybe even a patio or something like that. Your Juliets want to grow seven feet tall and five feet wide, and it doesn't sound like you have room for that. Uh, but there, there's some better, good compact. I think even Celebrity would probably do fine on your balcony. And uh, those plants uh, should be available in the next uh, week to 10 days uh, also. So, yeah, that would be a good thing to get yeah. a couple of. Uh, those patios, I don't care for the flavor. Or, oh, you know, okay. it, well, I've never seen a patio I liked. So. <laughs> Well, go for uh, Homestead. Go for, uh, um, you know, there's several good ones out there. Celebrity is still always one of my favorites. There's also one called uh, Arkansas Traveler. Really good, tasty tomato, and it produces over a longer period of time than most of the other big fruited tomatoes do. So that would be another one to look for, Arkansas Traveler. I was thinking of Juliet because you turned me on to that some years ago, and I, uh-huh. I just really enjoy that. Well, Juliet's a good tomato. You may have to prune it occasionally to keep it from getting too big, but, hey, if you like Juliet's, plant it. Yeah. And like I say, if it gets too big, just get your little snips after it and keep it down to a little more reasonable size. Yeah, that might work. Okay. Thank you, Bob. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thanks for the call. Okay, jumping down to line number three, that would be Tim. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Bob. I finally tried uh, Juliet, and I'm real happy with it. And Good. it is way, way burst tolerant <laughs> as far as it takes up water. Yep. My round cherries, 50% of them burst because yep. they couldn't handle it, and none of the Juliet did. Yeah, it's a good tomato. It's it's a slightly different flavor. I still like Sun Gold. is still my favorite, but uh, Juliet's way ahead of anything you're going to buy in the grocery store. Oh heck yeah! The the question is uh, is compost. I, about two days ago, two and a half days ago, I put together a pile, uh, and I do a one shot pile. I build the whole thing and let it run. Uh-huh. Um, and it's it's a little under two yards, so it's a pretty ambitious pile to do by hand. But <laughs> right, um, it peaked out in the low two hundreds, and it's right now it's crashing. It's in the one sixties Fahrenheit uh-huh. right now. What's the optimum? Would you let it go all the way to ambient before you flip it? I'm I'm trying to. I'm trying to prove a, a point to a friend of mine that I can make usable compost in three and a half, four weeks. <laughs> well, here's the thing. If you if you want to make compost in a hurry, you turn it. You turn it very regularly. You don't do static pile because static pile just takes longer to do. The problem is when you turn it regularly, you get compost that's almost 100% bacterial and very little fungal. So 
Um, your best compost is always going to be a blend of bacterially produced and fungally produced compost, but uh, static pile compost, even even the best of us, it's going to take us two or three months to make good compost. If you're trying to make it in a hurry, um, turn it periodically. That's probably going to cause it to heat up a little bit higher. Uh, I'm going to want it down, you know, in the 90 to 100 degree range before I'm ready okay. to plant directly into it. Now, if I'm using it as a mulch on the surface, uh, it's still going to be fine at 120. If I'm, oh, sure. but if I'm blending it into the ground, I want it to finish down to where the your soil probe tells you it's more like 90 to 100. Got it, got it. And this was uh, uh, only consisted of double ground hardwood mulch, two bags of of uh, back to nature manure, grass clippings, and dry molasses. That's it. Well, if you're into competing as far as making compost, stay away from the uh, wood chips because they're going to be the slowest thing to break down. I mean, if you're betting a case of beer or something really worthwhile, uh, go with more vegetative material and you'll make your compost a whole lot faster than you are with wood chips. Now, uh, this is a whole new sport, <laughs> you know, competitive composting. I like, I like the thought of it, but, uh, oh, yeah. if, Fine. if, if you're really trying to win a bet, um, and I'm joking about wagering, but I, it wouldn't be a bad idea. I used to, I used to win a bottle of wine very regularly when my friends would bet me that my tomatoes would not grow to the top of a six foot tomato cage. And I never lost, but, um, uh, 18 year old friend of mine over uh, earlier this morning, and I just kind of dug a little tunnel out there in the in about a, maybe a foot into it. And I said, "Here, jam your hand into here." I didn't think that kid knew how to cuss like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, just remember, if you really want to make compost quickly, stay with more vegetative material. If you want to make a little better quality compost and take a little longer to do it, then it's fine to do your wood chips and things like that. Well, and, I don't, and I'm going to stay with the wood chips too because, like, like you just said a minute ago, if I if I need a a top dressing mulch, sure. I can use it straight off the pile. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the help, Bob. As always. Well, it's always my pleasure. And remember, too, in the winter months, it's nice to have a compost like that that is not fully broken down because it's still generating some heat. And if you're using it to try to protect tender perennials, um, it's kind of like a little natural blanket over things because it's not only serving as a good mulch it's also generating some of its own heat so if you're growing tropicals if you grow in uh, some of the more tender perennials uh, having some of that not quite finished compost is a great thing to have in the colder months of the year well, so and speaking of competition on the winter side the show off big show off point is that on a nice cold morning is to crack it open and let <laughs> people watch like it's steam like a nuclear tower <laughs> <laughs> you're doing it right you're having fun with it tim you have a great afternoon and i appreciate Thanks the so call much, thank you sir bye all right uh next up is dolores good morning dolores good morning bob good morning i got a question for your your uh wild uh, plant knowledge. okay i have a pretty little vine that's growing up on my house on the side of my house it is wild. It has a bloom like a, a morning glory. Mm-hmm. It's white, four segments, and it's got a kind of a wine red center. Okay. And it has a, a leaf that looks similar to a, a maple leaf. What is it? It most likely is in the morning glory family. It's most likely in Ipomea, I-P-O-M-E-A. Um, I- it 
has a very, very thin vine, doesn't it? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's um, it's one that they call a wild morning glory. It's not the nasty one they call bindweed, but it is a wild morning glory. I'm virtually certain it will be Ipomea if you look it up in one of your wildflower books. And, uh, yeah, small leaf, very, very thin vine, and um, pretty little thing. The blooms don't last very long. Sometimes they don't even last a whole day. But uh, it's just an interesting native vine that's uh, native to the hill country. Yeah, the uh, the stems have uh, little hairs on them. Yeah, yeah. And I, I took some cuttings and, and uh, put root stimulator on them and put them in some dirt, and they seem to be doing. I want to move them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want them where they are. Sure. But I want to make sure of what they are. Well, they also, many times, they'll make a little capsule, usually have four seeds in it. Um, you're probably, not every flower will make a seed pod, but I suspect you're going to have some of them at least produce seed, and you can start some new plants that way as well. Oh, that'd be great. Well, I thank you for the information. My pleasure. You have a good Sunday. Thank you, Dolores. Bye. It's Maggie's turn. Good morning, Maggie. Well, good morning to you. Good morning. Um, I always enjoy your show, and I have four questions for you this morning. Okay. Are you ready? Here I'm go. ready. <laughs> I've, I've got some land that has some old crepe myrtles on them, and they're not blooming. Is that just their style, or I, I'm sure they probably have not been fertilized or taken care of, but you think there's any hope for them? Oh, absolutely. But I will tell you that the older varieties of crepe myrtle are always later to bloom i remember one next door to my grandfather's greenhouse that uh and this was a few years ago it was rarely in full bloom until august we are so spoiled with the red rocket the dynamite the pink velour the natchez all of these new ones that start blooming much sooner um i think your old crepe myrtles are going to be fine and you're just going to have to wait a little bit longer for them to start blooming now fertilizer will help uh, they certainly have plenty of water this spring. If it gets dry, you can certainly water them a little bit later. I right. would always check and be sure that root flare is exposed. But, uh, yeah, I think there's lots of hope for them, but they're always going to be late bloomers. They just don't have the genetics of some of the new hybrids. Okay, just use some growing green on them. That would be perfect. Okay, good. Next one is, uh, I think I've got red salvia, but it's uh, it's not the upgrowing kind. It's it's the low growing, and it looks like it spreads a lot. It does have a real woody, real woody stem, right? And a whole bunch of them. Yeah, that's probably salvia gregii. The red is much more sprawly than any of the other colors. Yeah, it's very sprawly. Okay, it's not blooming a lot. Uh, should I just kind of shear it off and fertilize it and? And and let it. I, I mean, you know, I know it's not had any care. Okay, is it? And are these are plants that are a few years old? Yes. You know the you have to be careful pruning it too heavily in the heat. Sometimes you just wind up killing it. Um, okay. If if we if this was April, I'd tell you to cut it back to three inches tall. This time of year, I'm going to fertilize it and water it, and I'm not going to cut it back until it cools off. Um, probably by the middle of September, you can do some moderate pruning on it. Next February, we're going to really get serious and butcher it up. But right now, you don't want to take off too many of the flowers. So focus on feeding and watering. Okay, I'll do that. Next is Garden Bed 101. I've got the vinegar and orange oil down. The grass is dying. Now, when it dies, do I dig up the grass? 
or what's the next step? Um, if it were me, I'd put a couple of inches of compost on it, and um, that would be pretty much all I would do. The uh, the dead grass is going to uh, be a little slow to decay. If you want to if you want to get in there and start replanting more quickly, yeah, get out there with a grub and hoe and get out whatever you can. But if you're patient and not really planning to use that bed until fall, um, I put down a couple inches of compost. I put down a little fertilizer and let Mother Nature rot it away for a little longer for you. Oh, that's even better. Okay. I don't like working in the heat. I like working early in the day and late in the day. And uh, um, (laughs) fall fall is more fun than summer when it comes to gardening. And in the fall, yes, for sure. Okay, that sounds good. All right, last question is, I've got some uh, flower beds, real hard dirt. What's best, soil activator or molasses, or what do I do to loosen that up? Well, compost will probably do more more quickly than anything. You just spread, you know, a couple inches of compost on top, water it. Uh, The humic acids and things that are in the compost are natural softening agents. Now, molasses and uh, soil activator or Medina Plus, uh, those will always help. But I'm always going to start with the compost, and then I'm going to add my molasses on top of that and add the soil activator on top of that. Keep some moisture to it, and um, it'll be somewhat softer by fall. It'll be really soft by spring. All right. Well, what, it's, it's got flowers in it. It's got flowers growing. Will the compost heat it up too much? Yeah. If you've got flowers in there, then I'm going to go with the probably actually dry molasses rather than liquid molasses. And uh, something, if you can get something, Medina Bank, something they call liquid humates, that's going to okay. give you the ben- benefit of the compost without the heat. And uh, the soil activator has some liquid humates in it. But I'm going to go more straight with just the liquid humates. I'm going to get some liquid seaweed. I'm going to get all the things that work at softening the soil naturally without creating that huge amount of biological activity that could get the soil a little too hot. So I'm going to use a little bit of molasses. I'm going to use a lot of liquid humate and a fair amount of uh, liquid seaweed. And uh, I'm just going to drench that soil with it every couple of weeks. Okay. That's exactly what I need to know. Thank you so very much. I I got my work cut out. You do. You enjoy it. I appreciate the call, Maggie, and I appreciate the attitude even more. You've uh, gardening is fun. I mean, when it stops being fun, you're doing too much, and it sounds to me like your voice says you're enjoying it. So that's a good thing. Oh, lots of fun. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. All right. Next up is Thomas. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. See, my wife uh, brought home a cantaloupe the other day uh, from the HEB. Uh huh. And it was real fancy little bags. Oh, yeah. With a bag on it. Yeah, that's something they charge more for it. About $3 for the damn thing. But that, <laughs> that thing was the sweetest, best tasting cantaloupe I've ever eaten. Very good. And I got the, I saved the seeds. I washed, you know, washed all the pulp off and dried them out real good. Am I wasting my time? Is it too late to plant them? Or? Um, you know, look into your crystal ball and tell me what the rest of the summer is going to do. If you <laughs> think it's going to stay mild and moist, 
Um, plant them. Otherwise, I'd put them in a paper envelope, put them in a jar in the refrigerator and save them till spring. Chances are you got a lot of seed if it's a typical cantaloupe. Yeah. So if it were me, I'm going to put two-thirds of it in the envelope to save, and I'm still going to plant a few seeds because what have you got to lose? I mean, the seeds are free. Um, you're yeah. probably going to be out there fertilizing and watering some other things. And if the weather cooperates, you could very well get some good cantaloupes late August, early fall. If the weather doesn't cooperate, you know, you lost a few seeds and you know, you're going to do right. well for the next spring. So I'd save most of them. I'd plant a few of them and, um, we'll see how we'll see what the weather does. Okay. Uh, another thing, uh, Remember, I planted that uh, that uh, Nevada lettuce. Yes, sir. Well, you know, I, I planted in a big, oh, a real big pot, and that stuff still hadn't bolted. Well, I'd say you. I remember James telling us about that, and so we've just found a good new lettuce variety. It does it still I'm have? It. I, I go out there, and it that it's uh, really it's you know pretty tasty. I mean, I get out there and grab it, and when I make a salad or something. Yeah, it's not bitter on you. Excuse me. It's not bitter. Still has good flavor. Well, to me, it's not. I mean, <laughs> of course, I, I built it up with a little olive oil and a little. A little uh, balsamic vinegar, vinegar. yeah. Well, it's... Uh, but, I, but it hasn't bolted anything. I mean, no had uh, flowered or nothing, so... I, sounds like a, an experiment worth repeating. It'll be on my list of lettuces to grow next year for sure, or this well, fall. Tonight, this is already the middle of July. Almost. It's been an unusual year, though, you know? Yeah. When we, you know, when we are not hitting the high 90s and low 100s in July... That's really not typical. So things are doing, some things are doing better this year than they will most years. You know, I never use the word normal when I talk about Texas weather, but typically it would be hotter and your Nevada might or might not be making it, but just enjoy it. I'm going to enjoy this weather as long as it lasts. And when it gets any worse, I'm going to go to Wyoming. So there you go. Right. What do you think about real quick? What do you think about when you when I plant my plants? I've been putting a handful of uh, the growing green, but then I put a handful of uh, lava sand. I in the hole. I'm doing more that. lava sand. I'm actually putting the lava sand on the surface, and it just gradually gets worked in. I'm finding that lava sand. Uh, improves my soil texture and improves the moisture retention capacity of the soil. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of lava sand, and uh, I don't think you could really use too much of it. So two handfuls would probably be even better. Well, that'll kind of help hold the moisture, right? Down yes, sir. In the roots? Yes, sir. Okay, good. Okay, Bob, that's all I've got right now. Good questions always. You get out and have a good afternoon, Thomas, and we'll talk again soon. And, uh... I will say good morning to Robert. What's going on, Robert? Good. Oh, just out doing some unfortunate summer pruning for brush pickup. <laughs> a necessary thing? You just didn't get an early enough start today. Well, oh, I got early. I've been doing it for four days now. Okay. Lots of trees to prune up. Um, but, you know, it's just, our, our brush pickup used to be September and March, and I loved it. Right. But they've changed their schedule. But, you know what, I have a truck. I can always go drop it off myself if I need to. There you go. Uh, a few quick questions, hopefully. Uh, tomato cuttings, can you do determinate from cuttings? No. 
determinant okay. will not grow well. Semi-determinants okay. are questionable if you get them when the plants are young. Uh, you can do okay with semi-determinants, but you're always going to do best with indeterminates when you okay. want to grow them from right. cuttings. What I thought, just wanted to verify. Yeah. Um, yucca. I don't know what variety of yucca it is, but can I take a, a pup or I don't know if you call yuccas, have pups like sagos. Can I take one this time of year? Uh, remove it from the mother not usually successful i mean if you need to cut it back give it a try but yuccas uh cutting the the little side growth off rarely succeeds uh the really good yuccas are almost always grown from seed uh sometimes you'll be successful propagating them vegetatively but uh, yuccas make a lot of seed, and they grow easily from seed. They, they're difficult to propagate from cuttings. So you've got nothing okay. to lose if they need to cut, be yeah. cut back anyway. And we're talking true okay. yuccas. Remember that plant that we call red yucca is totally different. That's not even a yucca at all. It's botanically called Hesperallo, uh, and it's a totally different plant. But the true yuccas, uh, Thomsoniana, Carnarosana, all of those, uh, tough to propagate from cuttings. Okay, it's worth a try. I got to get rid of it anyhow. Out okay. of the neighbor's yard, so yeah. I might as well try to grow it. Sure. For the for the health of the tree, uh, Mexican sycamore. Is there a, a a proper height to cut the canopy to? Not, or does it matter? It doesn't really matter. But having said that, and again, there are a lot of people out there that are a lot smarter than me. And when it comes to trees, David Vaughn is one that I talk to, and he was showing us in a seminar he did recently. And, you know, he had drawn it out like your physics professor would. And he was showing that the longer the bare trunk is going up, the more susceptible that tree is to storm damage. The easier uh, to break, the less force it would take, the lighter wind it would take to actually snap that tree off. The longer the bare trunk is, the more danger there is of storm damage. So prune it high enough that you can live under it, mow on it, do under it, do what you need to do, but, um, don't, don't overdo it because the more trunk you expose, um, and, and I've, I'm thinking about this a whole lot because a good friend of mine, he and his wife live about halfway between me and Bernie. Um, he had a little microburst the other day that, ripped away i mean metal girders and roof and blew over trees and snapped trees off at ground level and uh when you see that kind of damage uh sometimes you know there's no way you're going to prevent it but you sure do right. not want to encourage it by uh not doing the best pruning job you well, can that's, that's what i was asking with yeah. the, these two trees i planted their lower well, they're right at seven years old yeah um and they're probably they, they 30 feet got, tall there, I'm looking at them. I would think thirty to thirty-four foots, about the right <laughs> right height that they are, based comparing it to the house. Yeah, um, they did suffer. We had a pretty good storm here a couple weeks ago ourselves, and I cut several branches out of those yeah. that broke where other trees didn't. And that's what got me thinking about it. But yeah. I, they're they're right at. I I I have always canopied those to, to be able to walk under with the mower. Yeah. And that's so the that's best thing good. to do. Don't okay. don't be concerned about you know making them higher. They're going to be a little more damaged in the storm, and they're going to recover a whole lot faster. So, okay, good. Yeah. Last quick question. What do you support your blackberry bushes with as far as the vines? Do you trellis them? I use cattle panels. 
That's okay. That's what I use. But you do them straight, two on down each side of the plants. Um, or do you do circles on each plant? No, I do. I do just a single, just like a fence in effect with it. I, okay. you know, set them. I have a couple of them with uh, cedar posts. I have a couple of them with T posts. And then I'll just plant my plants about four feet apart on one side. I use, uh, you, you know, the old plastic tie tape you tie things up with. They have a form of that out now that's actually a Velcro tape. And I like to keep my fingers away from those thorns as much as possible. So I just use Velcro tape to encourage them to grow up and through those panels. And uh, okay. then when I cut the old canes back, you know, just grab them with a easier that's what i was thinking i've currently i have cattle panel but i've cut them and made large circles yeah but they these grow longer than i thought they would the vines do so (laughs) i thought well maybe straight trellis down each side i mean i do that like i do the grapes yeah do do straight trellis on one side okay and you'll be good that's what i do all right have a great day thanks for your help as always bob always a pleasure don't overdo in the heat uh, we're trying not to. Thanks, Robert. Morning, I'm in the shade most of the morning because I'm underneath all the canopies. Well, that's a good point. Just drink plenty of, uh, get plenty of electrolytes, and it's certainly not a bad working temperature. I'll be out there myself before good. long. <laughs> you uh, have a good day, and I thank you, sir. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It's going to be Victoria, Lydia, Mark, and Wade. And uh, Victoria is up first. Good morning. Hi, Bob. Um, I just wanted to ask a question. Um, I have a small pond in my backyard, and it's, okay. it's really clean. There's not hardly any plants by it. I've had it for about two years, and all of a sudden we're getting all these big water or roaches inside our house. Mm, so uh-huh. I don't want to harm anything like the lizards and uh, all the little birds and frogs. So what would be the best um, option, like the DE? Well, yeah, I don't think the pond has that much to do with those roaches. They're showing up everywhere anyway, and it's more due from the rain and just the warm temperatures and things. So I wouldn't be worried about doing anything different with your pond. I think uh, up as a, you know, around the foundation of your home, I think uh, the DE would be a very good thing to do. Um, inside you can always, uh, you can use DE or inside you can uh, make a mixture of a little bit of boric acid, which you can get at the drugstore, a little bit of boric acid and sugar. Um, I once made some bait traps. I used tiny little flower pots and I made a mixture of boric acid and just lard, just Crisco. And I put those, this was in a greenhouse and the roaches came in and ate it and died. So there are, we call them water bugs because we don't admit, we do not want to admit that roaches get that big. But yeah, That's I would start, huge. yeah, I would start with the DE outside. And then if you need to make a bait, if you find many of them inside, I just make half and half, uh, just sugar and uh, boric acid and put those little traps out of sight. But uh, that'll sure kill them safely. Okay. All right, but no all boric right. acid outside. Boric acid is very toxic to plants, so that's why you, we use it inside only. Okay. I was going to say, I've, I've never seen a roach by my pond, to be honest. Just yeah. Lately, he's just been, <laughs> been getting in. And, I don't know why. Ponds always get blamed for snakes, for roaches, for a lot of other things that they really have <laughs> nothing to do with. So uh, um, <laughs> you're smart yeah, enough was, to realize that, but also smart enough to hate those big old roaches. But, yeah. Yeah, I I would never want to lose that pond. Uh, yeah. My fish are about six, seven years old, and they're they're 
they're like family. Oh, I know. And I, my biggest problem with, uh, has always been that out in the country, I get those big old egrets and, uh, herons and things want to come in and eat them. So it's nice having at least enough vegetation around to discourage the birds, but yeah, go after the roaches with your DE and things like that. And, uh, uh, (laughs) that'll be the best you can do. Okay. Thank you. You have a great day. You do the same. Thank you so much. Bye. All right. Uh, next up is Lydia. Good morning, Lydia. Hi, Lydia. You need to be listening to the telephone, not to the radio, because we are on a several second delay there. And by the time you hear me on the radio, I've been sitting here waiting for you for nine seconds. Uh, Lydia, are you there? Okay. I'll give you about three more seconds and we'll have to go back on hold. Lydia, are you with us? The difference between perlite and vermiculite. You need to turn your radio down. It's it. It's uh, uh, perlite and vermiculite. Perlite is a. It's actually a volcanic material. It is heated to great temperatures and it pops kind of like popcorn. Perlite is used mainly to loosen soils up, and it's also a very good medium for rooting cuttings. Um, it was actually developed to make lightweight concrete, but because it is sterile, it is one of the best things on earth to root cuttings from uh, just about anything in. Vermiculite is more of a mica-type material. Um, it holds a lot more moisture. I don't use much uh, vermiculite. Also, in some cases, some vermiculite is contaminated with asbestos, which we certainly want to stay away from. Um, there are a handful of things, African violet leaves and things like that, that will make a mixture of like two parts perlite to one part vermiculite because it holds a little bit more moisture. But, uh, I really, I don't recommend mixing vermiculite with potting soils or anything else. I think maybe in some cases it may help with rooting some things, but, uh, if you're, if you're looking for something to lighten your soil up to use as part of a potting soil, perlite is a much better choice. Oh, wonderful. Another thing, I heard a man uh, say earlier on a call about lava, lava sand. Yes. What, what is that and where do I get it? Lava sand is just basically mm-hmm. crushed up lava. Um, you know, some of there are some old volcanoes in West Texas. They get it out of, um, it, it really is produced all over the country. You get to Hawaii, they grow even house plants in almost pure lava. But, uh, you will, if you're looking for relatively small quantities, um, you can buy it in bags. Uh, it's not very expensive. Uh, seems like we get it under the nature's guide label it's a green and white bag and a 40 pound bag is mm, less than ten dollars and it's a good thing to mix into your garden soil it's a good thing to mix into your potting soil and it doesn't go away once it's there it's going to last for a thousand years so you only have to add it one time well where do they sell this most nurseries most good nurseries yeah we sure have it at shades of green i'm sure fanix has it i think any any real nursery i I don't know about these uh, places at Home Depot and Lowe's. I don't know if they would have it, but a no, real. I don't think I've ever seen it. That's why it was news to yeah. me. No, ask about oh. it. Uh, Shades of Green, uh, Fanix, Rainbow Gardens, probably all your big nurseries should have it in stock. If not, they can sure oh. get it for you. Okay, well, I appreciate your time, sir. You Always a, a pleasure, day. Lydia. Thank, Thank you so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. 
All right, let's get earning here, and um, let's see. It's going to be Mark and Wade, and maybe time for one more call after that. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Morning, uh, sir. Up at, good morning. Up at our neighborhood pool, we have an old oak tree that's probably about four feet in diameter. Okay. It's got a uh, up at, after the main fork. There's a branch. It's like about two feet. Big, big oak tree. Mm-hmm. In that in that branch, there's a hollow. Okay. Now that hollow is a bunch of hackberry that's been growing <laughs> for a couple of years. <laughs> yes, sir. What do you do? Anything? I wouldn't worry about it. You know, okay. when when we get into a really dry period, um, the hackberries are going to die. I mean, if I were up in that tree doing some work, you don't ever you don't want to try to rip those things out because a um, a tree when it has a cavity like that, it actually on a microscopic level it walls it off. It it forms its own little layer of cells that keep any kind of disease, that keep any kind of problems from getting started in there. And when people with good intentions but bad ideas decide to drill a hole in to drain it or try to rip something out to get it out by the roots, when you disrupt that little protective layer, you've actually opened the tree up to a lot more problems. So at this point, I'm just going to kind of laugh at it. They're probably going to die when we, not if, but when we get into a real dry period, whenever that happens. Um, Like, say, if I was up working in the tree anyway, I'd cut them off as low as I could without physically doing any harm to the oak tree. But uh, um, that's just what Mother Nature does. And it'd be better to leave it alone than to, you know, actually try to physically pull it out or anything like that. These are about, they've been there for a few years. I've been watching them. Yeah. And they're like about four or five feet long. Some yeah. Of these yeah. Branches. Um, okay. Again. I'll just trim them back. Yeah. I just trim them back and, and okay. let people be amazed. That's that, that happens more commonly than you really realize, but, uh, it's unusual for them to get that big. But, uh, um, again, trim them back, but don't try to rip them out. No, around the corner from there, there was a, there was a uh, cactus plant, mm-hmm. like like twenty foot up in an oak tree yeah. once. And I've and seen, a, an, unless the tree gets so thick that uh, there's not enough light for it, the cacti tend to be kind of thin and spindly. But golly, if you've ever been down on any of the smaller Caribbean islands, you see that all over the place. And there are actually some forms of cacti that over the eons have evolved to be truly epiphytic. They prefer growing up in a spot like that, but yeah, I've seen I've seen cactus live in a crevice in a tree like that for you know forty years, and um, an interesting thing just for your own knowledge, uh, my friend that's a really good arborist was telling me that they're finding that even a hollow tree, if that if that area around where the hollow is is as much as two inches thick, that trunk is ninety five percent as strong as it would be if there was no crevice in it. So it's really not anything to worry about, not anything you can do a lot about if you wanted to. But it's uh, Mother Nature just keeps us amused if you keep your eyes open and look for things like that. Okay, that's all I need to know. Thank you. Appreciate the call. Thank you, Mark. (laughs) Goodbye. Okay, uh, we'll talk to Wade. Good morning, Wade. Morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Um, I didn't... 
I live down in uh, Wilson County, and uh, we uh, have a new place. I'm going to plant a little a section of St. Augustine, and, and, you know, we're 100% sand down there. Right. And I wanted to see if you if you thought we should amend that sand with anything before putting the St. Augustine down or just put the compost on the top. I would put the compost on the top. If you have some fully mature compost, I mean, it's cooled off. It, uh, you know, it just looks practically like dirt. Yeah, you can work some of that in, but um, otherwise, I'm just going to plant it. And, of course, variety-wise, I'm going to tell you, in Wilson County, Floritam is by far your best St. Augustine to plant. Um, and and as far as putting compost on top afterwards, don't do that in the heat of the summer. Now, when it cools off this fall, that'll be a very good thing to do. But until we get back down to where our highs are in the 70s or low 80s, you don't want to be putting compost on top of anything because it's just still generating too much heat of its own. If you can find some compost, in fact, if you can find uh, you know, a bag of compost that has no heat whatsoever to it, yeah, it would be good to uh, put some of that down underneath your uh, underneath your new St. Augustine. But if everything's still steaming, uh, better off to just plant your St. Augustine, roll it, water, 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 and uh, then put your compost down in the fall. We were going to wait until a little bit later in the fall to, to do it, but um, in that in that kind of sand, have you noticed that 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 e- that the St. Augustine requires a little bit more water even when it's established? Oh, absolutely. To a kind of more cl- uh, clay soil. Yeah, it absolutely does, but uh, uh, it will sure do well. And Wilson County, fortunately, you have a little bit more water than we have in Kendall County. But, uh, yeah, she'll definitely have to water it a little bit more often. But Floritam is more drought tolerant. It will get by with less water without showing any damage. So um, uh, the, the one thing I will caution you about if you wait too late in the fall uh, brown patch can be an issue, so if you, you know, if it's October before you get around to getting your grass in, give it a little preventive uh, uh, coating of the whole ground cornmeal because these all of these grass farms, they push that grass so hard with synthetic nitrogen fertilizers that they are very, very brown patch susceptible. And uh, like I say, those cooler night temperatures, I've seen a lot of new grass that didn't do well. Um, I think you're fine to plant it then, but I, I sure would give it a little follow-up application, whole ground cornmeal, just to be on the safe side. Okay, and we have we have a, a lot of people that, that want to put um, just topsoil down on the, on the sand to begin with. I heard you mention it last week, somebody you know, avoiding that. What was the rationale for that? If you want weeds, if you All want right. weeds, bring in topsoil. Uh, (laughs) You know, the thing, if you want to put anything down in a sandy area, the thing that builds organic material faster than anything else um, is actually anything that stimulates bacteria, stimulates microbial action. Uh, Good dry molasses or good liquid molasses, uh, there's nothing that's going to build your soil faster than something like that. Liquid molasses, liquid humate. Very, very inexpensive, and that's going to do more for your soil than bringing in a ton of topsoil. And I can almost promise you, if you want sticker burrs, if you want Johnson grass, if you want nut sedge, yeah, that's what you get when you bring in topsoil. Okay. Gotcha. And then can you apply that molasses like after just after planting? You can plant it before planting. I mean, if you're okay. thinking you're going to wait a couple of months before you put your grass down, I'd be applying that molasses every two weeks between now and then, and uh, your grass will take off and grow much, much faster if you do that. 
All righty. Thank you very much. Good questions. Good luck with your project, Wade. Thank you. <laughs> Congratulations okay. on Bye. your new place, too. Thank you. Thank you. Certainly. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. Got a couple of minutes here to talk about a couple of things, and that's not a bad deal at all. Um, if people or everybody's asking me, okay, what can I put in the vegetable garden now? Still time to plant okra. Okra comes up and grows so fast, and okra is going to produce way on into the fall. Get a lot of questions about red okra. I like red okra as well as the green okra. It tastes the same. If you close your eyes, you wouldn't know one from the other. But if you want to, if you want to create a little bit more attractive dish and uh, something that grows really well, plant Red River, plant one of the other red okras along with your green okra. But you can certainly do that right now. Want to plant some more squash? I think you're fine, but stick to the so-called summer squash, what I call the short season squashes that produce quickly. You can certainly plant some more zucchini. You can plant some more yellow crooknecks or yellow straightnecks. You can plant some more of the bush scallop called patty pan. But we're really too late to grow the hubbards, the acorns, the spaghetti squash. Those are probably not going to have time to make and produce before the weather gets cooler in the fall. But if you want to plant some more of the um, uh, summer squash varieties, uh, uh, today would be a good day to do it. Same thing, had questions in the show earlier about cucumbers. And cucumbers, you can plant still one or two more crops of those because uh, cucumbers produce all the way up until freezing weather. And, you know, the the vines do play out. When we get into really hot, dry weather, they still produce somewhat. But if you really like cucumbers, and <laughs> I'm finding more people from Dr. Kirby's staff to some of the people around the nursery that absolutely demand that I grow more cucumbers for them, I'll be planting another crop of cucumbers the next few days, and that's still another good thing to do. Um, we're getting real close to the time that your nurseries are going to start having fall bedding plants ready. And if you're growing determinant tomatoes, you better plant some more of them because your determinants from spring, uh, your 444s, your, oh gosh, what are bingos, you know, tycoons, some of those, they're pretty much done producing. So if you want more of those in the fall, you're going to need to plant more. But don't wait until you get the plants before you start getting the soil ready. Everywhere you plan to plant a fall tomato plant, go ahead, put out about a cup of good organic fertilizer, Put a bucket full of compost on top of it. Make a little crater in the top. Water it every few days. You will be amazed the change in the soil when those tomatoes are available in the nurseries and, you know, when you start putting them out. So looking for something to do in the garden. You don't have your tomatoes yet, but you can sure work at getting the soil ready for that next crop of tomatoes. And as far as planting, you know, do the same things you do uh, in the spring. Put a handful of rock phosphate underneath. Sprinkle a handful of cold whole ground cornmeal on the top after you've planted them. And if you've seen any sign of blossom end rot, nothing wrong with putting a couple more handfuls of Epsom salts around, and that will totally stop the problem. By the way, getting a lot of questions about splits in the sides of the tomatoes, that you can thank the wet weather for. When uh, tomatoes grow relatively dry, that skin gets a little tough, and all of a sudden we get really good rains, well, the tomatoes swell because they take up all that moisture, and you get the splits in them. Just pick them quickly when you see that. Slice them. They taste just as good but they will not last on the plants. They will rot a lot more quickly, so don't leave them on the plants. Harvest them and enjoy them. And uh, 
I'd say you can certainly plant more eggplants. You can certainly plant more peppers. Those transplants, and those plants should be set out from transplants just like the tomatoes are, but I think you're going to start seeing more of those in the nurseries beginning in about 10 days to two weeks, and uh, just get ready. Just be ready to plant them. Uh, The things you've got in the garden now, follow up with some fertilizer. I mean, we use that uh, dry fertilizer before we plant, but while things are really growing actively, whether it's your tomatoes, your peppers, your eggplants, your okra, um, use good liquid fertilizer, Espoma or the Fox Farms products, uh, Happy Frog, or of course the good Medina products like the Has to Grow and their new fish fertilizer. Be using that every couple of weeks if you really, really want to keep the production up. And if you're fighting the stink bugs, I don't know about you, but in my garden, I have just had an explosion of both stink bugs and leaf-footed bugs. I let's add soap. Uh, I just carry that little spray bottle and uh, 